Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. So I was teaching class a couple days ago, and I was talking with my students, and a couple uh, times the students would say a word that was a sort of pet peeve of mine. Like one student used the word uh, committed suicide, for example. You know, she was like, oh, well, so-and-so committed suicide, and I just sort of cataloged it away. I didn't respond right then because I thought, you know, why, why be pedantic in this moment? Uh, you know, it's it's week two of the quarter. These are first quarter students. I don't want to, I don't want to cause you know more insecurity and more anxiety for the already super um, anxious first quarter students. So I didn't say anything. But then later in the class meeting. Our class meetings are three hours long, so there's a lot of opportunities for things like this to happen. But later in the class meeting, another student said the word codependent. They were saying, oh, the so-and-so is very codependent. And I, you know, you know, responded to what they were saying. And then, and then I said, and by the way, codependent is kind of a hack word because of blah, blah, blah. And I explained why. And... Then I said, and while we're on the topic, I should also say that the, the phrase commit suicide is also not the preferred nomenclature. Now we say killing yourself or completed suicide because committed suicide implies a sin or a crime, and, and that doesn't seem like the way we want to talk about suicide. And and then I, I you know start moved on with class, and then someone raised their hand, and they said, so is it is it a hack thing to say if you say red flag? You know that's that raises some red flags, um, and I and I said, oh, I don't think so. Not not in my opinion. And I suddenly realized that I had created kind of a problem by calling out certain words that might seem quite natural to these students to be labeled by me anyway as evidence that they're a hack. Therapist. Now, these are, you know, second quarter graduate students or second week graduate students, meaning they've they've only been in graduate school for about seven days. And so, you know, they're insecure. They want to impress. They they want to do well and they don't want to come across as a, like a hack. And here I am, you know, jumping down people's throats about saying words you know, that come across as, as like a hack, even though to them it's, it seems like extremely accurate and normal words to use. And so later on, I sent out an email and I just said, look, uh, if, if, if you have anything to say about my, my hack pet peeve words, feel free to email me and yell at me about it. I, you know, I, I, you know, uh, I'm open to feedback, <laughs> but I also, it also sparked this topic in my mind of, what are all the hack things that therapists say that I hear often? You know, what are the most common things that I hear therapists say or graduate students say, for that matter, that indicates that they're a hack therapist or that they are amateurish? Now, I'm using the phrase hack therapist in an exaggerated form. It's not like if I heard a therapist say the word codependent, I would automatically think they're a terrible therapist. It's being a quality therapist is mostly independent of the usage of what these what I'll call hack terms. Being a therapist is extremely complicated. Graduate school is way too short. I mean, even though graduate school full time, two or three, four years of education of intense graduate school education 
it's just not enough time. There's too much to learn. There's too many little nuances. And I often say that 99% of what I've learned about this field, I have learned outside of graduate school. A lot of what I've learned about this profession has been doing this podcast. And so there's just a lot to learn. And, and especially when you're at the beginning of your career, you're really trying to act like you know what you're doing and you're really trying to come across like you're competent. You're trying to stave off any kind of criticism or any kind of noticing that you're terrified and you don't know what you're doing. And so there's just a lot of uh, issues there. But anyway, so I thought I would do an episode in which I just listed 15. So I, I just sat down and made a list and I, and I came up with 15 different things that I see novice therapists or students do that indicate to me that they need to change that. <laughs> it's a nicer way to put it. Um, you know, but in my mind, I honestly think, oh, that that's a hacky word that that person used. I hope you understand what I mean by hack, you know, like amateurish is a synonym, I suppose. So, I thought I would just list those out. So let's get into it. What do you say? Um, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. I'm going to read one of these. It's going to be codependent. I'm going to go into detail. It's, it's got quite a story behind it. But the other 14 is only going to be available to patrons. So if, if you're interested in hearing the whole episode, you have to become a patron of the podcast. I'll explain that later. So anyway, let's go into codependent. So the most important criterion for the label of codependency is when someone enables another person to engage in the destructive behavior that they're into, like alcohol use, or um, you can enable or you can be codependent by enabling someone to not move out of your house, like, you know, with an adult child, or if someone isn't working, you can enable that and and some people will apply the label that you're codependent or if someone has gambling problems or anger issues and that the family member enables that behavior to happen, sometimes uh, the label of codependent will be used in situations like this. Other characteristics that have been identified, and I should say that codependency is not a clinical term. It's more of a, a term that is in the uh, addiction world. Um, so it's, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a mental health clinical term, but anyway, the, but the other characteristics that are often cited are uh, being defined by someone else's larger personality and behavior. Um, you know, a codependent person not only enables their spouse or their family member to continue with the destructive behavior like drinking or anger issues, but they also define themselves through that problematic person. Uh, you know, usually because of childhood mistreatment, right? Uh, childhood, childhood mistreatment, as I often talk about on the podcast, can lead to a lack of self, um, a lack of self-preservation, a comfort with chaos, reliance on approval. And this can lead someone potentially coping with those difficulties by becoming a people pleaser, um, by finding someone else to control, by finding someone else who exhibits um, you know, issues with their life so that you can take care of them or even criticize them as a way of distracting you from your own issues. So I hope that makes sense to, uh, about codependency. But let's look into the history of, co of codependency. So we have to go back to 1935 when Alcoholics Anonymous was formed. And in the beginning, for the first number of decades of Alcoholics, Alcoholics Anonymous, they 
they mainly focused on individuals who were struggling with alcohol use. So they didn't focus on the family members very much. They were, it was very much like we need to help the alcoholic to not be, you know, to not drink anymore, to go through the 12 steps and all that kind of thing. Then skip forward all the way to the 1970s. And this is when family therapy and family systems theory started to influence uh, all areas within mental health, including the treatment of alcoholism. And those who specialized in alcoholism, they found that when they looked at the family, they found that the spouse of or another family member of the alcoholic would often interfere with recovery and sobriety. And it seemed surprising because when someone is drinking all the time and their life is falling apart, it would make sense that the family members and their spouses and people around them would want them to recover. You know, if, if, you, if your wife is drinking all the time and, you know, having all sorts of problems, it makes sense that you would want your wife to stop drinking, right? And certainly that was true, but, they all, but what these family therapists and systems-oriented people within chemical dependency, what they started seeing was that these family members strangely would do things to kind of sabotage the recovery of the alcoholic, and so this was very much in line with systems theory in that we don't look at problems in individuals. We have to look at problems in families as a whole and in society as a whole, that you can't just look at an individual's behavior and treat the individual. You have to actually look at the whole system. And so these systemic thinkers, these family therapist people, they found that um, there were a number of odd behaviors specifically that they would find in spouses and other family members of the alcoholic. For example, they might find that a spouse might actually encourage the alcoholic to drink, even though the alcoholic has stopped drinking because they're in recovery in AA or some other chemical dependency situation. Um, like they might come to the recovering alcoholic and, and say, you know, why did you quit drinking? You were so much more fun back when you were drinking before. You know, why'd you quit? So this is a criticism of their sobriety and and odd particularly you know by the time someone enters treatment for alcoholism they've probably had a, a you know number of years of difficulty with it and so it it seemed weird to these systemic treaters of of the alcoholic that these spouses would sort of work against sobriety it just seemed weird uh or a family member might shame the alcoholic you know to you know, it's like, oh, you're a piece of shit or something as a way of trying to manipulate the alcoholic to drink again, because alcoholics will often drink when they're ashamed of themselves. Shame, you know, what people in chemical dependency will often say is shame is the main driver of addiction. Or a codependent spouse might subtly make the alcoholic feel terrible about themselves by putting themselves down. By, by putting the alcoholic down, you know, that might be like, oh, you're so stupid or, you know, I don't know, you don't know how to do anything right or that kind of thing, which can be a subtle way of manipulating an, a recovering alcoholic to drink again. And the list went on and on and on. These people started observing all sorts of things. And they were just like, wow, we can't just treat the alcoholic. We have to also treat the family members because if we just treat the alcoholic and the alcoholic goes, the recovered alcoholic, the sober alcoholic goes back home, then they're, uh, they're likely to relapse again just because we're ignoring the broader picture of the problem here, with, namely the, the family 
and most notably the quote-unquote codependent. And so they started calling the these people who were uh, these problematic other individuals that were close to the alcoholic, they started calling them co-alcoholic, you know, like a co-pilot. So they would, they would lay, it was often their spouse. So they would say, they would, you know, your spouse is the co-alcoholic and they would go to the spouse and they would call them, you are the co-alcoholic, meaning that uh, it was a, it was a word that they used to try to emphasize the fact that the spouses and the enabling family members, they're not off the hook. They're not, they don't just have a family member with an alcohol problem they are also part of the problem and they need to take responsibility for that and they need to start problem solving around how they interact and how they think and how they relate to other people as it relates to the alcoholics issue. And so this co-alcoholic, you know, they're not just calling it, you're not just the spouse of the, you're, you're, you're actually just, you know, you're the co-pilot. Um, and so uh, they, that, that's the term that they would use. Um, so skipping forward to the 1980s, this is when drug addiction became more of an issue in our society. Perhaps it was a more prevalent, but perhaps it was just more paid attention to. And treatment programs started uh, you know, realizing that they could actually treat drug addiction too. They didn't just treat alcoholism. They're like, look, someone's addicted to cocaine or heroin or or even gambling or something like this, we can actually treat those as well because our model seems to work with, with these other folks as well. So they, call, they started using the term chemical dependency instead of alcoholism or, you know, or drug dependency. It's like, oh, let's, just, let's just call it chemical dependency because that, it's a catch-all phrase for everything, for all substances. And that term has retained till today, 2019. So instead of calling the you know the two people the alcoholic and the co-alcoholic, they would call the person the you know someone who was chemically dependent and the the co-alcoholic they changed to co-chemically dependent. But that's kind of a long term, right? Co-chemically dependent, you know. Co-alcoholics is much easier to say than co-chemically dependent. So they so they just shortened it to codependent. So that's when we first started seeing the term codependent. So, so I hope for those of you who didn't know where this term comes from, I hope you understand now why I would be bothered by this term being used so broadly for so many different things. Because people often use this word codependent as a word for dependency, and I'll get into that later. But really, codependent is very specific. It is a individual who is very close to someone who is suffering from chemical dependency who does things that enables or encourages or somehow participates in the problem along with the person who has the chemical dependency and and it's not even really a personality type it because the, the other thing to point out is that when you are you know take a perfectly take the most healthy person on the planet and put them in a marriage with someone who has a pretty good uh, case, pretty strong case of chemical dependency. No matter how healthy you are, no matter how hard you try, you will start doing codependent things because you love that person. And it sort of forces you into that situation. You know, like just as an example, let's say you're married with kids and you're, you know, you're pretty healthy and your spouse drinks every day. 
you know, starts drinking at noon and drinks until the night, until the evening. Doesn't get super drunk, but sometimes overdoses a little bit and becomes a little slurry in speech. Well, you've tried talking with the alcoholic spouse about it. You've tried saying, hey, you know, I, I, this is a problem. Like, why are you doing this all the time? And the alcoholic spouse is like, oh, yeah, you know, I need to stop. I, I really do. And they try to quit. And maybe they quit for a few days. And then they, you know, they fall off the wagon again. And they struggle. And, and it's years of this where it's like, oh, you're right. I need to stop. And they try to stop. And then eventually they're just like, they're so shameful about their use. They're just like, fuck it. I'm just going to drink. And I don't, and I, cause it's so hard to quit. It maybe the person has been traumatized in their life. They've been, they've been untreated for that. And so they just sort of give up and, and they're just, they just sort of hand their personality over to the alcohol because it, to them, it feels like the only way they can cope. And as a spouse, you're watching this and you love this person and you want them to stop, but you see how hard it is. And when you bring it up, the alcoholic person might get a little touchy around it, right? They might be like, you know what? Get off my back. Stop talking about this. And you sort of learn over time. It's like, okay, I, I probably shouldn't bring up this issue because it seems to be pretty, pretty ingrained, pretty uh, stable. And now I'm at the point, I'm 10 years, 15 years into this relationship. We've got kids together. Our lives are intertwined. I do love my spouse. But at the same time, I I really want things to change. I go to friends to talk about it. They say to leave my spouse, but I don't want to do that. Or they say, just put your foot down. And, and I'm like, I feel like I've already done that. And then, so you're in this conundrum. And then let's say your spouse drinks too much the night before, is hungover in the morning, and can't make it to work. And is passed out, completely just passed out and won't wake up. And you're worried that your spouse is going to lose their job. Well, what do you do? You know, you're in that situation. Now, to some on the outside, they're just like, well, just divorce the person and move on with your life. And look, you know, if, if that's your point of view, you're either too young to have experienced enough messiness in life, or I don't know what your deal is, but life is too complicated uh, to make such simple calls in life. You know, Every relationship has its problems, and it's a matter of pros and cons. Anyway, the point is is that you're in that situation. Your spouse is passed out in the bed. They're not waking up. You realize they're going to miss work, and what do you do? You could do nothing and risk your spouse getting fired. You could call the office and say, I'm sorry, but my spouse is super hungover and probably isn't going to make it to work, and that could lead to you know, political problems at work for your spouse or maybe even being fired or retribution from your spouse, frankly, or more drinking from your spouse because you know that the more shameful your spouse feels, the more likely they are to drink. Or you can call the work and say, I'm really sorry, but my spouse is really sick right now and can't make it into work. And that's what a lot of people do. And guess what? In the chemical dependency world, that's called enabling. That's called codependent behavior. You are now enabling this spouse to continue to drink, uh, and you are buffering consequences for that person, essentially creating the problem. But you understand that when you lay out life in, in the way it really goes, 
it's not like you wake up in the morning and you're like, okay, I'm going to cause more problems in my life and in my family's life. No, you're just making little decisions based on anxiety in the moment and based on what you have available to you. And, and then, so your spouse wakes up and says, oh my God, I missed work. And you say, look, I called work. I said you were sick. Well, now you've set up this pattern where now your spouse is like, huh, okay, well, that was, thank you so much for doing that. And then the, the, spout, the drinking spouse eventually drinks to, you know, is starting to drink to, to excess and thinks, well, you know, my, my spouse will call my work in the morning if I get too drunk. And so I, I could probably, and the, then it just gets worse and worse and worse. So every little step down the road eventually, you know, allows the alcoholic or the person suffering from addiction to get worse and worse and worse. And so this is codependency. This is enabling. So that is codependency. It's quite different than dependency, which is a personality trait or even a personality disorder. So in the 80s, this word of codependent emerged as a way to acknowledge the, you know, the family member, the person close to the chemically dependent person uh, in terms of what they needed to change and that kind of thing. Then in 1986, Melanie Beattie popularized the concept of codependency with the book Codependent No More. Some of you older folks or people in chemical dependency might know this book. It's a quite famous book, Codependent No More. And it, at the time, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was a very popular book, particularly for women who had alcoholic or uh, husbands who had struggled, struggled with addiction. Um, and codependency, after this point, after this book and lots of other talk, the term codependency became very popular. Um, people started really taking to it. And they started to apply the term codependency to a lot of other situations, not just the family members of people who have a, a, an addiction problem. Like they started using codependent as a term for people who have abusive spouses or people who have controlling spouses or people who have avoidant family members or something. And like I said earlier, uh, it is sometimes like if you have a child who is 27 years old and plays video games all day and never leaves the house, sometimes people will, and you're, and you're seemingly enabling that behavior. Uh, some people will label you as codependent. So it really started to become broad and then um, there were even more books published on it, and a lot more claims were made. And other claims, like it was a, people were saying it's a personality disorder. And this led to the concept being somewhat mainstream within the field of psychotherapy because it was so popular, it sort of bled into our professional field. For example, some researchers tried to get codependency included in the latest DSM in the, in the late 80s, early 90s. They wanted codependency to be a personality disorder, but it was rejected um, because there was a lack of empirical evidence for the most part. And, and also, I would guess that um, most serious researchers at the time, they looked down on chemical dependency workers and this term codependency comes from the chemical dependency world. And so, you know, serious, you know, psychiatrists are the ones mainly who write the DSM. I'm pretty sure it's psychiatrists. I mean, it's the American Psychiatric Association. I'd have to look at the, the notes to see. Anyway, the point is, is that, um, you know, 
researchers in psychology and psychiatry are the people who write the DSM. And historically speaking in our field, there's been a, a sort of elitism of looking down on other professions. Like my profession of marriage and family therapy is often looked down on because we, we came new on the scene in the 80s and 90s. And so we're considered like new kids on the block, so to speak, and uh, therefore sub um, substandard to old school uh, fields. Uh, and chemical dependency has been looked down on. Um, it's still looked down on today, by the way. And so I suspect that it was rejected from the DSM because of that reason. Um, and also around this time, people started throwing around the word codependency in all sorts of ways. And it, in my estimation, it was this time when it started to morph from the original definition to a broader term of just being a synonym for dependency. Like when you're dependent, you can't go to the store by yourself or you have a really hard time with your self-esteem unless someone else makes you feel better or you're extremely anxious making decisions on your own or you always need advice before taking a step forward. Um, and the, the list goes on and on. I, and, and I've done a, a whole deep dive that was just for patrons on passive aggressive personality disorder, and which is very close to dependent personality disorder. So become a patron and you can have access to that. I, that's probably a number of hours long episode. But anyway, so I hope you get the difference between codependency, the true definition of it, and dependent personality disorder. So again, people started using codependency as a stand-in for dependent personality disorder. Then there was this big backlash in our field. I, I think because the term was being used quite haphazardly in society and also in our field. And in my uh, speculation, in my observation, anything that becomes popular in the wider culture that is uh, something within our field immediately becomes suspect to those within our field. Like, multiple personalities, multiple personality disorder or manic depression. These things became very popular terms in the eighties and nineties and people started throwing them around all the time. You know, that person has multiple personality disorder. That person has manic depression. Well, the, they became so popular that they, people started to distort these terms. They started to bastardize these terms in society. And again, this is just my narrative. But I think that uh, our field and, and those in control of the of the terms, they're like, we need to we need to get control of this disorder away from popular culture because popular culture is ruining it for us. They're applying it too broadly. They don't understand it, and so. They changed multiple personality disorder to dissociative identity disorder. They changed manic depression to bipolar. Now, multiple personality disorder kind of makes sense why they changed it, because it's not actually different personalities. It's actually different alters that come forward. The person has one personality, but that's kind of a semantic thing, right? It's, it's not that big of a deal to say that people with DID or dissociative identity disorder have multiple personalities. I know there's quite a debate about that. But the other one is really quite, you know, silly to me. It's like originally it was called manic depression and then they called it bipolar, which is essentially in essence the same term, right? So why would you change in manic depression that totally fits the term, right? I mean, I don't know the exact history on why they changed it, but but it's interesting that other terms in 
the DSM don't get changed, even though they probably should be changed, probably because they're not garnering a lot of public attention. But anyway, so I think at this time, uh, codependency was being bastardized in a lot of ways. And our field was just like, we, we've got to, you know, we've got to wrestle control away from these people. So some researchers started looking into the concept. They're like, okay, there's a lot of claims being made by a lot of pop psychology authors. Let's actually look into the claims that are being made about codependency. Um, because because at this point, codependent, authors in codependency were expanding the term to, inc- to include a lot of different personality traits and a lot of different pseudoscientific claims were being made about it and all this kind of stuff. And the researchers found that the construct of codependency didn't really hold together under empirical observation. I could go into detail on this. It's quite complicated as to how our field actually legitimizes or delegitimizes different constructs. But just believe me when I say that codependency was found to not really, the way it was being broadly used, it didn't really make any sense, particularly as a personality type. You know, because I, like I said earlier, you can push someone into a, into codependent behavior even though they don't have a personality disorder by the nature of the their circumstances right they're just sort of they, they're just sort of reacting normally to a very difficult situation it's not a, it's not necessarily indicative of their personality so this is similar to type a personality i did a whole episode on type a personality this is another term that is bastardized by society people like oh i'm type a personality and the when you actually look at the personality traits that are associated with type a personality and you actually try to find these personality types among you know a population of people you you don't find it these these traits don't fit together so the whole construct of type a personality doesn't make any sense i mean i guess just to demonstrate this imagine if i were to write a book and i claimed that there was you know type x personality and i threw together just out of my own machinations or experiences or storytelling to myself that there was uh, a, a, a certain kind of individual with type X personality who was aggressive and also loved nature and also liked to smell paper in the morning and liked to put their keys into their ear and loved YouTube videos about popping zits. Like if I just said type X personality involves these people I hope you understand that in all likelihood, those five characteristics don't fit together. <laughs> they don't correlate. And so th- that's what type A personality and codependency was doing. There were authors just kind of throwing together all these different traits that weren't actually correlated with each other and didn't cluster together into a, a, a type of person. And so researchers were like, okay, we've decided codependency is, is BS as a personality disorder. You could absolutely look at codependent behavior, like I said earlier, like there's codependent behavior that some people engage in, but you know, a lot of people love to yell at football games. You know, They're screaming at the ref or whatever, but you don't necessarily label that a personality disorder. We don't have to put that in the DSM. You're just like, well, that's a behavior. It might be associated with something. I don't know, but codependent behavior seemingly isn't 
correlated with any kind of personality in a strong enough way that we need to have this construct in the DSM called codependency. Um, so that was that. And we thought, well, okay, we've decided as a field, let's, let's get rid of codependency. Let's, it's, let's use other terms here like dependency or maybe codependent behavior, enabling behavior or something. But let's, let's get rid of that word because it's, it's really being overused and it's, it doesn't make any empirical sense. Regardless of this, the term continued to be used because it had already infiltrated the society at large. And us as people in the psychological field, we are so terrible at communicating to the wider public that most people who have used the term codependency wrongly have never heard anyone say otherwise. They've never heard from us in an effective manner stop using that term. It's, you're not using it right. There's another term that's much more specific and accurate to our field, which is just the, you just have to take the co-off. Just, just use the word co, just use the word dependency. Um, and it really drives me nuts. You know, there, whenever I hear the word codependent, I would say 99% of the time they're using it wrong. It's like the way people are using the word literally today. If you're one of those people who, doesn't like it when people are using the word literally in a in a wrong what they actually mean is figuratively or actually and they're actually saying the word literally in a in a literally wrong way um if you're one of those people who doesn't like that shift in our culture and would like to retain the meaning of words and you know words mean something to you then you can relate to what i am going through when i hear people using the word codependent in a wrong way. Now, having said all that, anyone who knows anything about linguistics and history and society understands that language morphs over time. And maybe in 20 years, literally in the dictionary will actually have a completely different definition, perhaps the opposite definition as it does today. Uh, language changes over time. There's nothing wrong with that. And I, every word that I'm saying right now is a product of that process. So I'm okay with that. However, if, I'm, if I go to a clinician and say, by the way, do you know the definition of codependency? And they're like, uh, I guess I don't. Then I say, well, here's the definition. And they're like, oh, I guess I should stop using that word. Then that's different, right? That's, that's, um, to me, it's like if you're a clinician and you're learning the language of your field, it, there's, there's a – we can't just – allow things to drift away from their original meanings. Unless we as a, as a field decide to say, look, let's just use the word codependency interchangeably with the word dependency. You know, if as a field we come together and say that, then I'll go along with that. I'm I'm cool with consensus, but no one is saying that. No one has ever said that as far as I know. Everyone who knows the terms dependency and codependency codependency in our field know that these are drastically different things, and codependency is a really quite specific thing that most people don't really understand what it is. Anyway, so clinicians use this term, and my students, like my student a few days ago, used the word codependent, and it because it's this word is just totally infiltrated our society. So, you know, like an example of people using this word incorrectly would be like. Oh my God, she's so codependent. She can't do anything by herself. I'm sure you out there have heard people use 
codependency in this way, or you've even said it before. And again, just to remind you, codependency is the process of being a uh, close person to someone who has chemical dependency, who enables that or is part of the problem. That's, if, so if you want to use codependency in that way, like, oh my God, she's so codependent, she enables her husband to drink all the time, then I'd be like, oh, nice, you used the word correctly. <laughs> but if you're saying, oh my God, this person can't do anything by herself, then the word you want to use is dependency. And think of all the calories you'll save, all the energy you'll save by not having to use that extra syllable of co. So that's why whenever I hear the term codependency or codependent from a clinician and they're using it wrongly, according to my ears, I immediately think they're a hack. (laughs) Now, I don't think that they're a terrible therapist necessarily or a terrible person for sure, but I think they have they've you know if they're making a mistake regarding that word what other mistakes are they making and what other holes in their competency exist um i you know it's a quick just fleeting judgment that i will make of someone i you know, I, I would never just write someone off if they use the word codependent um if if that if if i did that i'd probably write off 75% of the therapists that i know so um, you know, but I, but I will tell you that when I hear that word from somebody, I, I immediately think, oh, and they're using it wrongly. I'm just like, oh boy, you know, you, how, you probably need to hit the books because you're not using that word right. Um, and I, I guess as I'm thinking about this, I'm a bit of a stickler when it comes to personality disorders in general. If you haven't noticed <laughs> a number of episodes that I, make are about being somewhat pedantic and protective of our field's definition of different personality disorders, even protecting these definitions and conceptualizations and constructs from other clinicians, probably most, most clinicians. You know, I, I go on YouTube sometimes and I see clinicians throwing around narcissistic personality disorder in a way that indicates to me they do not understand what that personality disorder is. And which makes sense to me because personality disorders are very difficult to understand. But at the same time, it's like, hey, I don't mind if lay people use these terms wrong because, of course, they would because why would they understand these things? You know, I, I, I'm not enthusiastic about it, but it, it stands to reason that they don't understand things in our field, particularly complex things like personality disorders. But if you're in our field, you know, before you say something, you know, just make sure that you know what you're talking about. And, and a little bit of knowledge can lead to the Dunning-Kruger effect, right? Which can lead to you thinking that you know what you're talking about when you really don't, right? Now, I'm sure, I'm, I'm, uh, in fact, I catch myself sometimes doing this too, so I'm not saying I'm above it at all. And I'm mortified when I do things like this. But I, I guess I have a principle that if I don't really know something, I'm going to at least give the caveat that I don't know what I'm talking about or, I, or I'm not confident in what I'm saying. You know, if, if I start talking about uh, politics, for example, I hope that I often will say something like, look, I'm a lay person when it comes to politics. There are people who study politics their entire lives. And I'm sure if I say anything related to politics within three words, into my statement, a expert will look at me and, and, and say, oh, 
honey, you really just don't know what you're talking about. You know, God bless you for trying, but, you know, you really have a simplistic or mistake, common mistaken understanding of how politics works. And I get that. So I don't know why I'm going down this rabbit hole. But anyway, so I, that's why I want to, so that's why I want to talk about uh, hacky things that therapists will do. I have 14 other things, but uh, those are for patrons only. So if you want to hear those 14 things, go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. When you become a patron, you get access to hundreds of patron exclusive episodes, including this one, in which we do deep dives into ver- various topics. And when you become a patron, you don't have to listen to the vast majority of commercials in all likelihood. And also remember that a portion of your monthly pledge goes towards various charities that we support. All right, welcome to the Patron Zone, people. Thank you so much for becoming a patron. All right, so number one uh, was codependent, and number two is sociopath. So let me explain. The word sociopath has a long history, going back to the early 20th century in Germany. Skipping forward to today, <laughs> but you know, sparing time here, there are very few serious authors in our field use the term sociopath. They much more often, probably you know, thousands of times more often, use the term psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder. However, there are a few legitimate serious authors who still use the term sociopathy or sociopaths. For example, some will say that sociopaths have learned their problematic behavior, like someone who grew up with violent parents or in a violent neighborhood. You know, these people learned their harmful behavior to other people, their manipulative behavior, because they had to or it was just around them. And these people can be re-educated away from those behaviors. They can learn um, to behave differently. Uh, in essence, they have a personality that uh, allows for morality or understands morality, has internalized morality. And but they just learned a really bad model of way of living. However, psychopaths in relation to sociopaths are are conceptualized as people who were born with their problematic behavior or they developed it early in life and they actually don't have a morality that includes caring about other people. So they can't be reeducated. They just can only manage their their issue. It's like they have a deficit in their brain or their personality that can never be uh, fixed. So some people will differentiate between sociopaths who have learned their problematic behavior and psychopaths who are basically biologically fixed in their psychopathy. But that that's pretty rare that I see people using uh, that term. Um, in my uh, circle... No one ever uses the word sociopath. They just use the word psychopath for all those people or someone who suffers from antisocial personality disorder. And then they just go into more detail about it. You know, they'll say like, well, so this person I've, I, in my opinion, they suffer from psychopathy, but you know, a lot, it's hard to tell if they learned it from their environment because they grew up with a lot of violence around them or if they were born that way. I'm not really quite sure. Could be both. Could you know that that's the kind of discussions I hear. I don't hear someone say this person is a sociopath, and then everyone's supposed to know what people mean by that. Um, you know, psychopathy is a quite complex thing, and 
um, contrary to the way the internet talks about it. And so uh, just saying the word psychopath is not very meaningful in my world. It's a matter of really explaining what you see and the severity and, you know, your conceptualization of maybe where it came from. So regardless of the fact that almost no one uses it, uh, uses the terms sociopath or sociopathy in our field, it's still being used by many, many people, particularly in popular culture, but you know, many in our field as well. For example, on the internet, just uh, anecdotally, I find that the word sociopath is used just as often as, as the word psychopath. And the word and the phrase antisocial personality disorder is almost never used. So it's just kind of interesting in that way, right? Um, I, you know, it's, it's hard to know why people love the word sociopath. I think sociopath is easier to say than psychopath, maybe. I don't know. Also, sociopath might not, you know, the word psychopath might be confused with psychosis for some people. They might get those mixed up, and so therefore they they just use the word sociopath because it's so clearly not one of those words. I don't know. It's hard to say why sociopath became the preferred word, even though um, even among people who uh, still use the term in our field, which there are a few, they would not agree with the way people are throwing it around on the internet. Um, so, you know, like I've never written the word sociopath or sociopathy in my notes, but I've definitely written the word psychopath or psychopathic personality disorder or antisocial personality disorder in my notes. So if you want to avoid appearing like a hack in my world, anyway, don't use the word sociopath. Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't really do a poll of other people about this word, so it could be that I'm alone in this. Let me know if, if you're a clinician out there, if you consider this kind of a hacky word. I, um, but to me, it's, it's, I never read it in, I almost never read it in legitimate literature, um, whereas I see these other words in legitimate l- literature. So, I'm just, so when, I, when I hear a clinician say the word sociopath, what I think is, unless they really explain that they're using the, the legitimate usage of that term, I immediately think, oh, this person probably has read very little literature and research regarding, socio- regarding psychopathy and antisocial personality disorder, because if they read all the literature that experts will read, they would not be using the word sociopathy or, or sociopath. They'd be using the word psychopath. So that's why, to me, it, it appears like you're a hack. Again, if you use it in a legitimate way, then, you know, I, I wouldn't think that. I would think, oh, wow, not only are you an expert in this, but you actually know the, the distinction between those, um, especially if you said, you know, um, I know the word sociopath is sometimes used interchangeably, but I am using it in this way. Anyway. Uh, number three way that, in my opinion, you can come across as a hack is to say disassociation. I have students that do this all the time. There's something very temp. So students will learn about the condition of dissociation. So dissociation. And so you have association and you have dissociation. And the first time that novice people will hear the term dissociation for whatever reason, they sort of flip it around in their head to disassociation. So they'll say disassociation. 
I, I, for some reason, I totally understand why people would make that flip in their head. It's a similar issue to uh, in, enfranchisement and disenfranchisement. You know, people will say people are being disenfranchised, but and and actually that word has, I believe, been accepted in the English language, but you know, by elitists who determine those things. But the the with enfranchisement, you have franchisement, right? If the word franchisement, and you have enfranchisement. And then you have you should have disfranchisement, not disenfranchisement, if that makes any sense. It's sort of like when people say irregardless, right? If you're familiar with that problem. So it, some people will say irregardless, but what you should be saying is regardless. I think irregardless has actually morphed into a word that's accepted in, again, the elitist notions of what our language is supposed to be. Um, I don't have a, because those are not, clinical terms. So again, I don't mind when language morphs over time, but there is no, there's no word called disassociation in the English language. One, two, it is not the word in the DSM and in the clinical literature. No one, no one in our field uses the term disassociation. You know, some people use the word sociopathy. No one uses the term disassociation. They only say dissociation. So when I hear a clinician use the word disassociation, I, it, it indicates a sort of hacky quality to you. And I actually just heard this yesterday from a student. I didn't call, now if a student, now here's the thing. If you're a student and you use the word sociopath or you use the word codependency or you use the word disassociation, I would never think you were a hack. What I would think is I, it's my job as your professor and supervisor and maybe mentor to point out to you that that word makes you seem like a hack. So stop using it. It's sort of like if I have a booger on my nose and I'm walking around, I would think, I would hope that my friends and family would walk up to me and say, or coworkers that are close to me and say, you have a booger hanging out of your nose, you know, pick it because it's gross. I want you know, occasionally it happens. And I really thank people when they do that. I'm like, thank you. Um, another example of this is I, I used to say the word nuclear, you know, that the word is nuclear, nuclear, right. But first, but there's a thing in our society where for whatever reason, people are bastardizing that word as nuclear. And that, and a friend of mine actually said, so say the word, say the, say the word that refers to you know, atomic bombs, the other word. And I was like, what nuclear? And he started laughing. And I was like, what? He says, say that word again. I was like, nuclear. And he's laughing and laughing. And I'm like, what is, and then other people started laughing. I'm like, what is going on here? Am I in the twilight zone? And eventually he's like, you're saying nuclear. It's not nuclear. It's nuclear. It's nuclear. And I was like, oh my God, how weird is that? How did I, how did I internalize that word? Where does that come from? And now whenever I say nuclear, I, this little thing pops into my head of just like, thank God someone pointed this out to me years ago, because otherwise I'd have this booger hanging out of my nose and I wouldn't know it. So don't say the word disassociation because it, especially if you're like 10 years into the field, it really makes you look like a hack. Number four is other specified or unspecified diagnoses. This is actually kind of a complicated thing. So let's get into this. So, in the DSM, we in DSM five, we have you know all these different disorders. You have panic disorder, you have bipolar, you have dissociative identity disorder, you have 
post-traumatic stress disorder. And then at the end of each chapter, because they, they, there's different classes of disorders, if you're not aware. So you have depressive disorders, you'll have anxiety disorders. And at the end of each chapter of these classes of disorders, they'll say that you can apply these labels called other specified or unspecified. Like you could have other specified anxiety disorder or unspecified anxiety disorder. And there are some legitimate uses of these terms and some hacky uses of these terms. And this is, this is a nuanced one. It's not like every time I hear other specified or unspecified disorders, I immediately think hack, but they often are used in very hacky ways, particularly by novice therapists. So if, if you're aware of DSM three or four, you would remember uh, not otherwise specified or NOS. That was the way it used to be uh, termed for or rule out or provisional is sometimes used. Anyway, um, so for example, uh, other specified disorders or other specified, let me just do one in particular, other specified anxiety disorder. We apply this label when the individual does not meet the criteria, the criteria for any of the particular anxiety disorders in the DSM. So if someone clearly has anxiety and they, uh, these, these anxiety symptoms cause clinically significant distress or impairment, but for whatever reason, they don't fit neatly or well enough into any of the diagnostic categories in the anxiety class chapter, then we say they have an other specified anxiety disorder. It's sort of this catch-all label for anyone who has anxiety, who has an anxiety disorder, but they don't fit into the other categories. But when it's other specified, then you have to give a reason why you're applying that label. Like you would say, um, general anxiety, you would say, you know, you would say other specified anxiety disorder. This person has generalized anxiety that has not occurred more days than not. So in order to qualify for the gener generalized anxiety disorder diagnosis, you have to have worry, anxiety, nervousness more days than not, you know, in a, in a given a span of time. But let's say you have someone who reports to you, you know, all the classic symptoms of generalized anxiety, but they tell you, no, I, you know, I probably go for five days without having any symptoms. And then I have three days of intense symptoms. And then I have seven days of no symptoms. Then I have one day of intense symptoms. And you're just like, wow, this is, this sounds like clinically significant distress and impairment due to anxiety. But for some reason, it doesn't fit the specific criteria of generalized anxiety disorder. So I'm going to apply the label other specified anxiety disorder. And I'll explain why I'm saying that because they have clinical, clinically significant anxiety that doesn't occur more days than not. The other label here that I'm talking about is unspecified anxiety disorder, or, you know, all the unspecified disorders, but specifically unspecified anxiety disorder. If we're looking to that, again, these people who are labeled with this, according to the assessor, they don't meet the criteria for any of the anxiety disorders. But again, the patient has anxiety, anxiety symptoms that cause clinically significant distress or impairment. But in this situation, you don't have to give any reasons. You, you can just say unspecified anxiety disorder, period. And you don't have to justify why you're giving that label. It's, it's an even broader, more, less specific term than other specified. I hope that makes sense to you. So people will typically give this label 
because clinicians don't have enough time to perform a full assessment. Like when someone comes into the emergency room at a hospital and you actually only have like two minutes to, so that was one of those moments when I, I had an urge to use the word literally. And I wanted to say, you literally have two minutes. Um, and I'm, because society has infiltrated my brain as it would in, infiltrate anyone's brain to use the word literally in, in the wrong or in over usages ways. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm trying to train myself not to use the word literally. So I said, you know, so let's say you you're in an emergency room and you're an assessor and you actually only have two minutes to provide or even 30 seconds to perform an assessment of a patient who is being treated for, say, a broken arm or something, and, and, and they, you don't have the luxury of doing a full assessment. Well, you might very quickly as an assessor notice that this person is suffering from some sort of panic attack, but you don't have enough data to justify a panic disorder diagnosis. Uh, you know, you're pretty sure there's some significant anxiety there, um, and you're taking your best guess and you're saying it, it looks like it's in the class of anxiety and isn't related to, you know, schizophrenia or something. So I don't know enough yet. So I'm going to say unspecified anxiety disorder. Um, so that's a legitimate use that that's that's the you know, that's the purpose of other specified and unspecified. So other situations where you might use these two labels are after a full assessment, you you know, for whatever reason, you can't legitimately place the client within a diagnostic category, but they're clearly suffering from something. For example, if someone is close to bipolar, but they've never really had a, a clear manic episode or their manic episodes seem to be very mixed. And bipolar can be actually very difficult to diagnose, particularly for people who have rapid cycling or mixed, mixed episodes. And you're in the first, you know, four to five sessions and you're just, they're like, yeah, I'm not really comfortable just slapping the label bipolar one or two. I'm going to say, um, I'm going to provide a, um, other specified label here. And maybe down the line, I'll, once I zero in on this or get some consultation, maybe I'll apply, um, one of the mood disorders. So that's a legitimate use or, um, another legitimate use is after a full assessment, um, you need to consult with an expert because you don't really know that much about that area. Like for me, I haven't assessed, let me pull, let's see what, what class. Well, I, I haven't assessed psychosis very much. I haven't treated very many patients with psychosis. Um, I have occasionally, but in, if someone came to my office and exhibited delusions, psychosis, hallucinations, I would do my best to do an assessment, but if I needed to provide a label right away, I wouldn't feel confident just slapping schizophrenia or psychotic bipolar on there. I, I would want to say, look, I have to consult with, with an expert. Or another legitimate use is I have to talk to the rest of this family because I'm not getting really a, a clear picture here. So these are uh, you know other legitimate uses of these terms of uh, other specified or unspecified. Uh, another one is, um, you know, for some people in agencies, some clinicians, they have to diagnose a patient very quickly. So uh, if if you're in the field, you know, but if you're not, so someone comes into an agency, a mental health agency, 
and they want to use Medicaid. They want to use medical coupons. They want the government to pay for their um, for their care. For those of you who don't live in the United States, that might sound weird <laughs> that uh, people have to do that. But anyway, um, so you need a medically necessary diagnosis in order to have the third party payer or the government pay for the services. So you need to apply a label and and often these intakes can last, you know, only one or two hours. And in, in that time, you have to administer a ton of paperwork. They have to sign all these things and fill out all these forms. You have to, and then you have to assess the problem and assess the diagnosis. And if someone has a pretty complex presentation, you might not have enough time. So you might just slap that label on there and hope that once the case is assigned to an ongoing therapist, that that ongoing therapist will provide a more thorough assessment and get rid of the unspecified or other specified label and actually apply a more specific label. Another legitimate use of these labels is that a client is emerging into that diagnostic area. For example, uh, let's say you have a client who clearly had a panic attack, but it was, but it was their first one and there's not enough time to have passed that because part of the panic disorder criteria is that at least a month must have passed. It's, it's sort of worked into the definition. And so let's say they just had a panic attack yesterday and it was their very first one and you've assessed it, you've assessed it and you're just like, man, that is a classic panic attack. But by definition, since it hasn't been a month yet, you can't actually apply the label of panic disorder. So you might apply the, the label of other specified anxiety disorder and then explain they, had, they clearly had a panic attack, but it hasn't been enough time. Um, and, you know, there are also some le- totally legitimate other specified or unspecified labels in our field. Like there's a lot of research looking into um, other specified feeding and eating disorders. So these are things like anorexia, bulimia, this kind of stuff. And what they found when they actually study everyone with an eating disorder, there is something like 10 to 20% who actually clearly have an eating disorder but do not fit into the diagnostic labels provided in the DSM. And there's actually people that are putting forth, it's like, look, I think we need more labels here because we can't just be shoving all these people into this amorphous you know, category of other specified or unspecified. We probably need to do more research and figure out like, is it is this one thing that we're looking at or is it five different things? You know, we need to do it because part of the problem with these unspecified, other specified labels is sometimes they don't get taken as seriously by people. Um, another legitimate use of this is bipolar disorder. There's, a, there's, as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of odd presentations when it comes to bipolar and some of them actually don't meet the criteria for bipolar. And so to me, it may, I, I've seen legitimate you know, usages of other specified bipolar or a trauma related disorder. And I'll, I'll get more into that later, but um, trauma related disorder, trauma can cause a lot of problems, many of which are not included specifically in the DSM. And so you can have a other, you can have another specified trauma related disorder. And if you explain it well, then it's a, to me, a, not only a legitimate use, but a common use for, for that label. Now, having said all that, there are, super hacky ways that people will use other specified and unspecified. And this is all just anecdotal. (laughs) It's just me, me, you know, in my life, like 
some of my supervisees or students or even experienced therapists, when they work at an agency, again, they'll get a file from the intake person and there'll be an unspecified or other specified label. And the student will say like, well, that was what was in the file. So that's what I, that's what I'm going to work with. You know, so they get a, they get the file and it says other specified, um, uh, depressive disorder. And the clinician is just like, okay, well, that's the diagnosis. And so I'm just going to forge forward as if, you know, that's cool. And they don't actually take the time to be like, well, in all likelihood, that label was given because the assessor didn't have enough time. And they were, they were hoping that I would follow up and actually nail this down. Um, so when, when I have a supervisee or a student that comes forward, you know, I say, well, what's the diagnosis of the client? They're like, oh, other specified anxiety disorder. I immediately ask them, will justify that label because that's kind of a weird label. Not a lot of people actually have other specified anxiety disorders. Those are quite rare circuit. There's quite rare circumstances that they wouldn't fit neatly into a uh, GAD or a phobia or PTSD panic or OCD or whatever. You know, it's pretty rare that someone suffers from clinically significant anxiety and they don't fit into one of the other areas, you know, it's just because they're pretty broad areas. So that's a pretty hacky way to act. And I'll explain the circumstances. It's not like these students and novice therapists, supervisees of mine are, you know, waking up in the morning and going, ha ha, I'm going to be a hack therapist or I'm going to be lazy or something. That's totally not the case. What is the case is that uh, graduate school does not support people enough in diagnosing. Now, I will say that psychologists who, you know, get a psychology degree like uh, my, I have a PsyD, which is a psychologist degree. You actually do get a fair amount of experience assessing, not just diagnosing, but also just the full breadth of assessing. Because because one of the things that psychologists can do that other people generally aren't competent in doing is providing psychological assessments. So this is like a full battery for ADHD or a full battery for uh, a personality disorder or something. You know, there are psychologists that will assess a criminal to see if they are fit to stand trial or if they were insane at the time of the crime. So this, you know, being a psychologist, you tend to be better at diagnosing. But if you have a, you know, a PhD in counseling or a PhD in marriage and family therapy or a master's in counseling or a master's in social work, I wonder if social workers are a little better. Um, they might be because because they tend to be trained for hospitals and whatnot. But anyway, there the the vast majority of clinicians who practice in the United States um, are these master's level people. And, and although I train those people and love those people, they don't get enough time uh, diagnosing. Now I try to do my part with my students by, you know, I teach case consultation in which they're, I have them in, in my class for 15 months. So for 15 months, they're in my class and and I really try to hammer on them on a number of things. But one of them is like, prove to me that you know how to diagnose people and really systematically show me that you can stand up to criticism about a diagnosis. Um, not because I want to make them feel like crap, because I want, I want, this is trial by fire and I only have a certain amount of time with them. And after they graduate, they might not get another drop of education. Because for whatever reason, when it comes to continuing education for clinicians, there's not a lot of of continuing education classes on how to diagnose. And if you ask the average graduate, 
particularly re- recent graduates, uh, about their diagnosing skills, they'll often say like, yeah, I mean, I don't really feel that confident in my ability. And this is a pretty technical thing, right? You're, especially if you're working with outside people like insurance companies, you know, you're putting often the only thing you're reporting to, like for me, when I report to an insurance agency, the o- one of the only things I'm reporting is the diagnostic code. And occasionally I have to justify that. And I have gotten better at it, you know, over my 20 plus years as a clinician, because I put my mind to it. Plus as a supervisor and as a teacher, you just sort of learn these things. But when I first started out, I, I was really insecure about it. So that's why when a clinician gets a file, especially when they're an intern, and it says unspecified anxiety disorder, they're like, well, there's already a diagnosis there. So why would I change it? And I'm not sure if I even know how to, how to change it, you know? And what if I change it and the person who put that label there feels insulted that I change it? You know, the, the intake person it has been working here for 10 years. Who am I to change that diagnosis? All these thoughts are irrelevant, you know, when you actually shine a light on it. It's like, you know, the intake person probably wants you to change it. Um, and you're the main clinician. You get to change it to whatever you feel whatever you can justify, whatever you have found as data for the client, not only do you have the right, but ethically speaking, you should be changing that diagnosis. So that's one thing I'll hear people say is, you know, well, that was in the file. So, you know, that's what I'm going to go with. Another thing I'll hear people say when they're being a hack is they'll say like, well, who cares what diagnosis is on the file? No one's going to read that anyway. So that statement should sound hacky to anybody. Another thing I'll hear people say is, well, I just diagnose all my clients with unspecified anxiety disorder because it's just easier that way. I actually one time had a supervisee tell me this once. She was actually an experienced clinician and I was her supervisor. And she said something along these lines. She said, well, you know, I just always throw on GAD or I always just throw on unspecified anxiety disorder because, you know, that's just what I, I just, I just put that on all my clients. And it seemed as though she had got it from somewhere before, you know, like some supervisor or some sort of cultural thing of an agency that she was at. That was how they did things. And I just couldn't believe that, one, she was doing that, and two, that she would admit it to me as her supervisor, that she thought she came from a world or a mindset or something in which it made total sense and was totally okay to do this, and two, to tell your supervisor who was in charge of overseeing your ethical practice Uh, that you just, uh, you know, wantonly apply labels that may or may not actually be legitimate. And so uh, I see people do that. Again, they're not doing it in my mind because they're immoral assholes. It's because they're just not trained well enough and they don't know that they need to get more education or something. Okay, so that's my ranting about the fourth hacky practice I see therapists commit, which is using other specified or unspecified diagnoses in seemingly illegitimate ways. Um, Again, there are absolutely legitimate ways of using it um, that are often used, but uh, at agencies, I see them being thrown around in, in very incompetent ways. Number five, hacky thing that I see therapists do, amateurish thing that I see therapists do, therapists do is that they will say something like, and this is actually particular to students, they'll say something like, you know, that theory is stupid. You know, they'll be like, cognitive behavioral therapy is for robots. You'll hear that sometimes. Or they'll say like, 
Freud and psychoanalysis, that was, that's, that's pseudoscience. We have proven that psychoanalysis and psychodynamic therapy and humanistic therapy, these are all complete crap therapies. You know, you'll, you'll hear people say stuff like that. And certainly you'll see more experienced people, but I, I find it more indicative of, of younger therapists, particularly therapists who attend programs that focus on one theory. You know, my program at Antioch University, Seattle, we actually don't focus on any theory. So we, we try to teach them all the main theories, which, can, which is a difficult task. I'm actually in charge of a work group right now for faculty trying to problem solve this because we have probably like 20 theories that we have to teach our students by the time they graduate. And as I've, as I've been saying, there's, there's not enough time to even teach them adequately how to diagnose people, let alone 20 different psychotherapy theories. Whereas other schools, they will focus on one. So there's pros and cons to that, right? Focus on one, you really get to know that one thing. But the con is that you're completely ignorant of all the other, uh, you know, theoretical arenas. So we decided a long time ago that we were just going to, you know, decades ago that we were just going to do all of them, all the main ones anyway. And so what will happen is if you're at a program where you own, like there's a program in Seattle that only teaches, I think they just teach narrative family therapy. And that's a very particular form of therapy. It's a wonderful form of therapy. But if you only learn that one, then one, you won't understand are the theories enough to make an evaluation. And two, there's just a natural bias of just like, well, I'm trained in narrative and narrative is the best and every other theory sucks, you know, that kind of thing. Or your instructors might be staunch narrative purists and might fall victim to that mindset as well. So they might actually teach you that other theories suck and or they might actually um, just kind of give that vibe off. But anyway, so when people say this or that theory is stupid, I consider that to be a very hacky thing to say. Um, because to me, advanced level therapists understand, advanced level theorists or theory understanders, people who understand theories, understand that all theories have merit. Every single psychotherapy theory, absolute, all the main ones anyway, and we're talking like 50 to, you know, 100 different theories that, you know, you got psychodynamic, interpersonal, cognitive therapy, behavioral therapy, DBT, uh, you know, acceptance commitment therapy, schema therapy, reality therapy, family therapy, structural, strategic, uh, narrative, solution focused, uh, you know, um, brief Therapy, brief dynamic therapy, Adler, Young, um, what, what else am I leaving out here? Uh, neuro, feminist, multicultural, uh, the list goes on and on, right? There's just, they're all glorious forms of therapy. EFT, they're, they're glorious forms of therapy that once you get to know them and get to really get to know them and get to know the research and get to know the, uh, how it actually works, you're like, wow, I could see how people like this theory. And uh, so when someone, when I hear someone say like, you know, CBT is for robots or psychodynamic therapy is stupid, I just immediately think, oh, you're a hack. You don't understand that theory enough because if you really understood it, you, you would understand the value of it. You might not prefer it, but you're not going to say it's stupid. And, um, and also it indicates that the person is probably just insecure. They're probably just insecure about their work and so they feel like they need to put other, other people down. And so, so I see a number of reasons for this attitude in terms of my um, 
analysis. You know, I have no way of knowing, but this is my speculation. Number one is that novice therapists who don't really understand a theory, they might uh, have an opinion like this because they just don't understand. Number two, novice therapists who are confused about a theory and would rather reject it than actually spend the time to get to know it. And number three, sometimes people have an agenda and they're very anxious about their career. You know, if you're a narrative therapist, I'm picking on narrative. It's not like narrative therapists are normally like, I'll pick on another group. If you're a CBT therapist and you're worried about making money, you're worried about your career, you're worried about your own legitimacy in the field and in society, you might be compelled to you know, create a straw man in another theory and attack it as a way of making yourself feel better or as a way of elevating yourself. Trying, you know, it's all, there's a lot of that in our field. There's a lot of imposter syndrome, a lot of insecurity, and that results in a lot of odd behaviors, including um, attacking other schools of thought. So again, all the theories have value um, and research actually supports that. So um, anyone who says that a particular theory is dumb is exhibiting to my ears hacky things. <laughs> I'm trying not to be too much of a dick in this episode. This whole episode is just me just being a dick to people, but I'm, I'm trying. I'm, tr- I'm trying. So this is if you're out there and you're one of these people, this is me saying you have a booger on your nose, right? <laughs> if you're doing this. I'm saying, at least to my observation, you have a booger on your nose and, you know, go to the bathroom or get a tissue because uh, you're embarrassing yourself to me anyway. And if, you know, maybe people don't care about that. I imagine most people don't care about that. But anyway, number six is uh, specifically psychodynamic therapy or humanistic therapy is not evidence-based. Uh, you, you, anyone who's listened to the podcast long enough, you've, especially if you're a clinician, you, you, you know this language. The whole term of evidence-based is you know, fraught with all sorts of problems. But now, I, I'm, you know me. I'm fully into science. I love science. I love empirical science. But when people have agendas and when people are insecure about their area, they're going to use tools to bludgeon themselves into dominance, you know, that – is not legitimate or fair or anything like this. And, you know, uh, randomized controlled trials are uh, the way that we study things. And, you know, without going into full detail, there's a problem in our in our field in that a lot of clients come for a lot of different reasons, you know. And, but in our field, we tend to focus when we're trying to find evidence of a particular theory working, we tend to focus on very narrow presenting problems like major depressive disorder or generalized anxiety. And when we focus on those things, uh, we have to provide a you know relatively short-term therapy regimen to test, right? So you're trying to affect, you're trying to uh, determine the most effective therapy for depression. And you only have so much money for the research project. Um, you have a fair amount of money because you're already doing this. You need a lot of money to, to do any random, you know, randomized controlled trial. Any effectiveness study, you need a, a lot of money. But, but you don't have billions of dollars. So what you do is you try to limit it in time. So you recruit all your patients and then you, uh, you know, put some into a control group and then you have another group with a treatment group where you do your 10 week, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy treatment. And then at the end of that process, you determine 
which is better if there's a, you know, and what they find often with, with CBT is that there's a reduction in depressive symptoms in relation to the control group. So what people will walk away with that is like CBT is evidence-based for depression and is, and is the only, and, and, and then they'll extrapolate from that. They'll generalize from there and say that CBT is the only legitimate form of therapy in general for any presenting problem. You'll hear people say stuff like that because they don't understand how research works. And so if you're a CBT therapist or that's what you're trained in or that's what you're writing a book on or that's what you're teaching on or that's what your program is, then you have an agenda to – you have a temptation to say stuff like that, to generalize in that way. Now, take a thing like psychodynamic therapy, which is designed for much more long-term things. Um, And psychodynamic therapy is much more open-ended, interpersonal intersubjective therapies are much more open-ended in terms of what you're supposed to do in a particular moment. There are forms of CBT that are extremely formalized to the point where you just you work, you work on worksheets with your clients, you know, okay, we're, today we're going to fill out this worksheet. And it can be very effective. It can be a, a wonderful way to help people with their depression or their anxiety. Absolutely. And I use it all the time. I use CBT all the time with all my clients in one shape or form particularly with people who suffer from uh, PTSD or anxiety or depression or something. But when it comes to psychodynamic therapies and interpersonal therapies, humanistic therapies, there, by definition, you can't really formalize the treatment because the clinician has to be able to react on their toes to what's happening in the moment. Now, there have been attempts to what they call manualize these treatments, but it's really hard to do. It's so much easier to manualize a CBT treatment. So that's one thing that's working against research in you know, these other areas like psychodynamic areas and humanistic areas. Another thing that's working against it is that psychodynamic and humanistic people tend not to like these sorts of studies in general. Even if it did work in their favor, they tend not to like it because they tend to be much more phenomenological in their approach in that they want to work case-by-case basis, you know. They don't want to just slap a treatment modality on an individual in an impersonal way. They, they want to tailor their therapy to the particular situation at hand with a particular client. So, that, so that's another thing kind of working against humanistic and psychodynamic therapies. Another thing is that humanistic and psychodynamic therapies usually are more long-term. A 10-session course of psychodynamic therapy is you're not going to get very far. You, I've, I've, I've gotten pretty far with people interpersonally in 10 sessions. I've gotten pretty far with people in just two sessions for sure. But, but psychodynamic and humanistic therapies tend to lend themselves to more long-term issues like self-actualization or relationship issues or trauma growing up, not like PTSD trauma, but difficulties, mistreatment growing up, you know, relationship patterns, um, relational injuries, narcissistic injuries. CBT tends not to be very good for these things. So in order to study the effectiveness of, say, psychodynamic therapy with narcissistic personality disorder, you have to have 10, 100, 1,000 times the money to be able to conduct that because it's going to be a lot more long-term. Plus, just trying to recruit people with narcissistic personality disorder is kind of hard, whereas it's very easy to find people who have depression or relatively easy to find people who have depression or anxiety to recruit. So all these things are working against psychodynamic, and there's other factors that um, work against as well. So after all these years of doing 
you know, randomized controlled trials, the quote unquote winner of this game has been cognitive behavioral therapy. Not necessarily because it's a better form of therapy, but because it just lends itself to this, this form of inquiry. And people are walking around now in, in my field and even people outside the field saying psychodynamic therapy and humanistic therapy are dead because they are not evidence-based. They, they will say evidence-based therapies are cognitive behavioral therapy and, and it's other forms like trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. So anyway, whenever I hear someone say something like psychodynamic therapy or humanistic therapy isn't evidence-based, I immediately think you're, you're kind of a hack because you don't really understand how the bigger picture works. And you're actually unaware of the strong evidence that psychodynamic therapy and humanistic therapy actually are evidence-based. They might not have been designated by the Association of Evidence-Based Therapies. I'm putting that in quotes. Um, But there is a mountain of evidence uh, demonstrating that psychodynamic therapies and humanistic therapies absolutely do work. Uh, It's just... It's just that psychodynamic people and humanistic people don't care to publicize it because they're just not really into that kind of thing. And as a result, psychodynamic therapies and humanistic therapies have sort of become less in favor in the last 10 or 20 years, which I find to be awful. Um, Not because I think they're better than CBT, but, but because I think every client deserves to have therapy tailored to them, not the other way around. And some people absolutely benefit from a mixture of cognitive therapy and narrative therapy or behavioral therapy and systems therapy or CBT and psychodynamic. And when you know all the different theories, which is a tall order, I realize, uh, I think you're, you, you can do your best work with clients. The, I've, I, in my 20 plus years as a therapist, I don't think I've ever had a client come to me and say, I have depression. Please help me with that. I know that there are clinicians out there that get that. Obviously, it happens. But I don't think I've ever had a case like that. What I get are people coming to me and saying, I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Or my relationships are falling apart. Or I feel terrible about myself. Well, and they're not depressed. You know, CBT is one possible angle there for sure. But humanistic and psychodynamic interpersonal therapies are so useful in situations like that. Anyway, number seven is when I hear people say Freud is an idiot. You'll hear this from people. They'll be like, ah, Freud's an idiot. He was obsessed with sex. And I used to be this way too, because, because I was taught this, you know, I was just spouting the propaganda that I, that I was told in graduate school. Cause a lot, cause some of you not in the field, this might be a little surprising to you, but I would say, I don't know, 99% of instructors who are teaching clinicians today know very, very little about Sigmund Freud and his theory. To people outside of the field, that might sound kind of weird. It's like, wait, that's weird. Shouldn't everyone understand Freud really well? And I don't know the answer to that question. I I personally kind of wish there was more awareness of Freud because there's just so much we should be appreciating at the very least about what he accomplished and who he mentored, who, and all the you know, generations of people who came after him that contributed wonderful things to our field. Um, but anyway, there's a lot of ignorance around it. And when you have an instructor, and then you'll have the occasional instructor that will just, for whatever reason, they just got it in their head that Freud's an idiot, and they'll just say it 
to a group of, you know, 50 students and those 50 students, that's what they, they, you know, they walk away and they parrot that notion and it just gets propagated through our field. Freud's an idiot. Freud didn't know anything. He was oversexed, all this kind of stuff. Freud was a genius. He lived at a time before talk therapy, before the, you know, 99.99999% of research that had been conducted, before we understood uh, biology the way we do today, before we understood the brain, before we understood um, society. Like he, he had to make it up, a lot of it on his own. And so with that in mind, just think about, we're, we're going to review what he provided to our field. And just, just think about like, he had to make all this up on us now because he, he didn't have any money and he also didn't really uh, look for it, but he didn't have any money to conduct these large scale studies of things. Right. So he had to kind of go off of case studies a lot of time, you know, people that he do, including himself, he would analyze himself a lot. He had to, that's what he had to work with. And so given that it's just amazing what he came up with. Now, many of his ideas have, have subsequently become debunked, you know, the Oedipus conflict complex, these kinds of things, or Oedipus phase, I should say, are, you know, they don't really stand to scrutiny these days, but so I'm not saying everything he did was genius. Um, but the other thing was, was that he changed his mind quite a bit. In fact, a lot of people will say he kind of struck gold early in his career. And then later in his career, he like switched his theory to another model and he sort of screwed up his initial theory. But his, his initial theory was actually quite sound. There's actually similar stories to like Albert Einstein that in his early career, he would say things that were um, spot on. And, you know, this whole string of things that he was saying that have been demonstrated by empirical observation afterwards, including, you know, today. And then later Einstein said some things that were seemingly him just being stubborn or not really with, with it in terms of the new science and stuff. And anyway, so I, I just think it, it's not uncommon for geniuses to have these kinds of problems. But anyway, I think part of it has to do with like you become seen as a genius and so, and you become kind of a celebrity. And so you just become kind of in love with your own notions and you stop actually striving to learn. So anyway, I don't know if that's what happened to Freud or Einstein, but you can see that happening anyway. Um, now, before I go over his contributions to the field that will demonstrate that he's not an idiot or not irrelevant is that, most of his contributions were not invented by him. He, others had come before him, mainly Charcot. Charcot uh, was a huge influence on Freud. And many of the, these ideas I'm about to say, you could argue at least had their genesis with Charcot first. Um, and also many after Freud would elaborate on ideas that he introduced. He might introduce a concept like countertransference, but then countless other figures, you know, namely Winnicott, Fairburn, uh, you know, Melanie Klein, uh, Ferenzi, Karen Horney, these people would elaborate on it and really give the flesh on the bone, if that makes any sense. So, so these contributions, we have to keep all that in mind that there were, there were some figures before Freud and then many after that actually, um, gave these concepts much more flesh that, um, that we have. But the thing about Freud that's genius is that he made these things popular at a time when 
people didn't care about this. There was a time when people thought Freud was a crank. It's like, what are you talking about, the unconscious? What are you talking about, talk therapy? That's all stupid, you know? It's all like woo-woo, magical crap. What are you talking about? Whereas today, we just take all these things for granted, and Freud stuck to it, and he was extremely convincing, and he was extremely prolific, and he fought against, you know, oppression. He had to flee from the Nazis. And so this this is a quite a huge accomplishment. And the amount of people that he mentored and all those mentors who went on to mentor others. Now we can cherry pick all the different things that were said back then and and you know Melanie Klein, for example, you can point to her and say like, boy, she had some weird ideas. But you know, it's a matter of discovery. A hundred years from now, they're going to look back at everything we're saying today, and they're going to cherry pick things, and they're going to be like, boy, were they dumb back then. And, you know, we wouldn't say to ourselves today, like, boy, we really should be ashamed of how stupid we are. We're just doing the best we can, and we're just moving the field forward. We're trying to figure this thing out called the human experience, and that's what Freud was doing, and he did it in such a big, important way. We owe him so much, not only as a field of psychotherapy, but as a society, the amount of goodness that has been born out of his, um, you know, uh, out, of, out of what he, you know, proposed that we do as a society is just, it's just amazing. So um, the, the following seven things are uh, things that I, th- are major contributions that he did. Um, Number one is that there are unconscious processes. Again, this wasn't invented by him, but he was the one who made it truly popular and elaborated on it quite a bit. Um, This was quite novel at the time. You know, today we're like, well, of course there's unconscious processes. We have um, all sorts of things that kind of um, govern our behavior that we're not necessarily aware of, you know advertising that works on you. And then when you, you know, be sort of injects associations into your mind and then you go to that store and you end up selecting a Toyota over a Honda, you know, everyone understands that advertising works in that way. Well, at the time that was, that was novel, you know, again, there were people who were understanding this, but he really made this a central understood idea in psychotherapy that later, uh, you know, bled into the broader society. Number two is Freud contributed the idea that there are different forces in the brain that interact. This is where the word psychodynamic comes from. You know, you have different parts of your psyche that are dynamic, forces that are working with and against each other. You know, for example, you hate your boss and you want to punch him in the face, but you also, so that's one force, you know, you have one dynamic in your, or you have one force that's working dynamically in your personality that you want to punch your boss in the face, but then you have this other force that is like, well, I, I want to conform to societal norms and I don't want to get fired. And so these two things work against each other, right? And, and there is a dynamic between those two thoughts. And so maybe as a result, you are passive aggressive to your boss instead. And so this is a concept that was not, uh, not in our culture back then. Uh, it is in our culture now. You know, as I say that, it's like, well, yeah, that sounds that sounds like uh, intuitive, but it wasn't in our field back then. You know, it and and it was elaborated on by Freud and his followers in such a way that really made it a powerful model for understanding how people work. Number three is that the past of that the past, our past life, our childhood, in particular, affects our current personality and behavior. 
again, most people uh, understand this. Like, well, of course, you know, your upbringing affects the way that you are. Well, again, this is kind of a novel concept, even kind of today. Like one of the things that I do when I'm talking with my students, uh, as I'll say, okay, let's figure out what theoretical orientation you are. And they're like, okay, thank God. Someone's going to help me figure out what my theoretical orientation is. And, you know, I run through cognitive therapy and I'll say, do you believe that your thoughts and the kind of beliefs you have uh, affect your feelings and behavior? You know, they'll be like, yeah. And I'll be like, well, then it sounds like you're a cognitivist. And I'll, you know, go down the line. And then eventually I get to psychodynamic and I say, do you believe that your childhood experiences affect your personality and your behavior today? And most people will say, yeah, absolutely. You know, if I was abused as a kid or if I was loved and cared for as a kid or if I went camping with my dad, all of these things affect how I feel about things today and how I feel about myself and how I feel about other people. This is a psychodynamic, psychoanalytic idea that Freud championed. Again, most people are like, well, isn't that intuitive? No, it's not intuitive. You go to other cultures where this idea has not proliferated, and other people will be like, no, I, that, my childhood, that was a long time ago. I'm me. I'm completely you know, independent of that. Basically, all of attachment theory is along these lines, right? And so Freud contributed to that. That's a big deal. And so when my students say, yeah, I agree, my childhood affects my current personality, then I say, you have at least a psychodynamic streak in you, if not, a, if not your full-blown psychodynamic thinker. Because it's, it's basically the only theory that has that uh, position. Humanistic people don't really have that position. Schema people kind of do, but cognitive people certainly don't. Behavioral people certainly don't. I mean, they kind of do. But anyway, the, I, that's one major thing that Freud um, contributed. And number, uh, number four is we tend to have patterns of relating to our, ourselves and to other people. This is an important psychodynamic Freudian idea. Number five, early abuse and trauma can cause mental illness. This was totally novel for its time. Uh, Breuer, I, sh- I should mention that Freud and his his mentor, really, J- Joseph Breuer, was, uh, sh- I should be including Breuer in all this conversation because Breuer and Freud came up with these initial ideas together. If not, Breuer came up with it himself. Um, but anyway, the, the idea that early abuse and early trauma, sexual abuse, can make you mentally ill later on in life was a complete medical breakthrough of that time that Freud championed and to some extent researched and, and, you know, found empirical evidence for the famous case of Anna O, for example, that kind of thing. And again, today we'd be like, of course, you know, everyone knows that when you're sexually abused from the ages of five to 10 years old, there's going to be issues later on in life, maybe your whole life that you're going to have. Freud introduced us to that idea because he found that. And when he would talk about that idea to people, they were like, oh, come on, that's so dumb. You know, uh, one, that never happens. And two, like, you know, that doesn't make any sense. How, how, could being, how could sexual abuse cause your brain to be different? I mean, those are two different things. You know, you have one thing, which is an experience. You have another thing, which is your biological reality of your brain. You know, those things are, they're not connected. And we know those to be absolutely connected. And Countless research studies have found that to be true. 
Freud introduced us to that idea, and we wouldn't be where we are today without Freud in that way. Now, incidentally, this is one of his earlier theories that ended up being true. He later rejected that theory, which it's like, you know, unfortunate. Number six is the idea of defenses. This is uh, an idea that totally holds up. A, a lot of people don't uh, know that in my field. They're like, oh, defense mechanisms. Isn't that passe? And I'm like, no. It's There's tons of uh, contemporary studies that confirm that defense mechanisms can be observed in people. For example, you're angry at your boss and you yell at your spouse. That's displacement, right? Or when you are sexually abused as a child and you don't trust your parents very much because they abused you, and then you grow up and you go to therapy and you transfer that uh, issue onto your therapist and you don't trust your therapist very much. Well, that's transference as a defense, and that's well-documented and you know observed. Um, and number seven is talk therapy itself. One could argue that Breuer and Freud single-handedly, the two of them, altered the course of our society by introducing and writing about and proliferating and being a staunch advocate for talk therapy itself. All you have to do is look around the world and realize that other societies do not have the level and the sophistication of talk therapy that Western societies have. And realize that Perhaps Freud and Breuer, particularly Freud, because he championed it for decades, Breuer should have dropped out of the game early in life, partly because his countertransference was so intense that he couldn't handle the job. But Freud introduced this idea of like when someone is suffering from what might appear to be a medical condition, even if you know they have numbness in their arms or something or blindness, or they come back from war and, and they can't talk, this appears to be some kind of medical condition, but but actually, uh, and and it is, you know, because because we can label it that. But instead of giving them medication or bed rest or something, what they really need to do is talk. Through talking, we can cure Ill- mental illnesses. We can cure conditions by talking. This was absurd to people back in the day. It still is to many people today, but. You know, for you listening to this podcast, I'm sure you're one of the people who do not think that's absurd. And you're just like, well, yeah, isn't that intuitive? No, it's not. Again, to you people who are in other societies that you'll email me sometimes and you'll be like, I I have this problem. And I'll be like, well, you know, go to a therapist. And And you're like, in my society, we don't really have therapists, or at least not the kind of therapists that are going to help me. And like I said, we can very easily pin that, res- that glorious responsibility on Freud. So anyone who says Freud was stupid or irrelevant or did nothing or you know, is worthy of, of disrespecting or forgetting does not understand these important ideas. And, and I'm just giving you the seven main ones. You know? Freudian scholars will have a whole long list of things that they can, that they can go over. Now, like I said... Freud didn't invent these things. Uh, he didn't even really invent talk therapy. But the, these things were extremely obscure things at the time, for the most part, in, in you know, the broader field of psychiatry. And he uh, elaborated on them. He, was, he 
he researched them in his case study way. He wrote about them. He was convincing to people. He trained people. He fought for legitimacy. I mean, that was a big thing that he did was a big part of his problems in, you know, the early time of his career is he had to fight for the medical profession, which is the field that he was in at the time to acknowledge that psychoanalysis or talk therapy or psychotherapy was actually a a worthy treatment modality. You know, for decades, people were just like, ah, it's ridiculous. It's hokum. You know, it's, it's, let's ignore it. Let's continue going down the role, you know, the road of surgery and medication and all that kind of stuff. And so he had to fight against that. And, um, and we have a lot to thank for him for that. (laughs) Plus, if you really look into his theory and his writings, it's actually pretty cool. Some of it is quite silly. Like he was, for example, he was a very um, staunch proponent of his idea of what we call Freudian slips now, right? Like you're talking at work and you're like, oh, um, I was talking to my wife, I mean my mother, you know, what Freud would say is like, oh, that tells you something about what's going on inside of your psyche. And we know today that sometimes you just make mistakes when you're talking, <laughs> you know. I mean, like he said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. But but he but he was probably erring on the side of everything has meaning and, and um, in a way that doesn't really resonate with me today. But anyway. Okay, so let's go. So, so when people say Freud is dumb, I think you are a hack because you do not understand what you are talking about. That was number seven. Number eight is when people say it's unethical to accept gifts or other claims like this. Like people will say it's unethical to have a public Instagram account or something. You know, there's all these like ethical statements that I will hear clinicians say that will drive me nuts and will indicate to me that the person is kind of a hack. There's just a lot, again, because clinicians aren't educated enough or they're educated badly, they end up with these notions of these black and white ideas, like you can never accept a gift from a client. And every ethical expert knows, every ethics expert knows that that's not a true statement. You absolutely can ethically justify the accepting of a gift from a client. It's a case by case basis. In general, it's, it's probably a good idea to refuse gifts from clients. There are certain practices that people will do. Like they'll say, Oh, I'm so sorry. I can't accept gifts from gifts from clients. It's unethical for me to do that because the reason being is that, you know, if you accept a gift from clients, that could lead to them believing that they have to give you gifts all the time. And that would create stress for the client and might, put strain on the relationship. They might um, resent you for that, or it might be exploitative of the client. You might be like, oh boy, I'm, I'm looking for a gift card to Applebee's. I hope I get one, you know? And, you know, that is a situation that we want to avoid ethically because there's there's no reason for that. There's no reason why a client needs to give you a gift, right? On the other hand, there are certainly cir- circumstances, I've been in them before, where if you don't accept the gift, that will actually harm the client overall. It'll rupture the relationship. The client might not understand why you're rejecting. They might be so emotionally hurt by it that they terminate therapy with you. So if in the moment you determine 
you know, based on the pros and the cons of accepting or not accepting the gift, you determine it's better that I accept this gift, then actually it's unethical to not accept the gift in that situation. Because we have a, our, our most important ethical code is beneficence over maleficence. You know, it's benefiting our clients over harming our clients. And if we determine that, okay, accepting this gift might lead to a little bit of harm, but boy, do I get a wonderful thing for this client by accepting the gift. I get, I get that I get to retain the relationship with them. I get to not insult them. I get to make them feel better by being able to give back, you know, sort of levels the playing field a little bit for, because for some clients, they actually want to give you a gift because they feel like you have too much power over them and they're, they're trying to level the playing field a little bit and some, you know, and that's fine. There's just nothing wrong with that. So having said that it's a case by case basis. And in general, you don't want to accept gifts from clients, but I will hear people say it is unethical to accept gifts from clients. And that's a pretty hacky thing to say. I will say on that one, if I hear it, I don't think hack the way that I'll think when someone said Freud is stupid. I'll just think that, the person really does not understand how ethics work in in our field. I was like that in the past too. And, you know, when I was for the first, I don't know, 10 years of being a therapist, I thought in these ways uh, because it's so much more comforting to think that there are rules. Like you do this, you don't do that. But then I actually started studying ethics and talking from talking to ethics experts and learning from them and reading case studies and learning the law, learning what people get sued for and this kind of thing. And I started realizing that ethics, that the more you know about ethics, the more you realize that it's not necessarily about what you do, it's how you do it. So it's not about accepting the gift or not accepting the gift. It's the process you went through to make the decision about accepting the gift or not accepting the gift. Anyway, number nine is when people say left brain, right brain drives me nuts. So the idea goes is that left brain is associated with logic and math and facts and that kind of stuff. You know, it's your, it's your hard mind, <laughs> hard science mind, left brain, logic, math, you know, kind of, and right is like imagination and intuition and creativity and feelings and this kind of stuff. You know, people will say, oh, he's very left brained, you know, or people will say, you know, use your right brain and try to create things. And many people believe this to be a fact. They'll say, yeah, there's a left brain and there's a right brain. There, you, know, you, can, you can be left brain dominant or right brain dominant. And I've heard therapists use this concept as well. And it's still being talked about on the internet. You know, Forbes article I just Googled says, reconcile your right and left brain to become a better entrepreneur. These are ridiculous statements. And let me explain. So the history is that Early on in our uh, you know, medical science, we found that we have a right and left hemisphere, right? And it's connected uh, by, uh, you know, some tissue, by some brain tissue neurons. But we have these very distinct left and right hemispheres. And we also started to find that um, our left side of our brain controlled the right side of our body. And the right side of our brain controlled the left side of our body. It's unclear exactly why we evolved that way. There's some speculation. But, but also with our eyes, like the left side of both of your eyeballs, those uh, connections go to the right side of your brain. And the, the right side of your eyeball vision on both eyes 
goes to your left side of your brain. So there's this there's this weird kind of crossover thing. So each side of the brain is sort of responsible for a different half of your body and, and visual field. And so they said, okay, well, that's interesting. And then they found that when people had damage on one side of the brain, they might actually experience some particular deficit, like a language deficit. So they started thinking, oh, this side of the brain is responsible for language, and this side of the brain is responsible for that. And it became a sort of phrenology. You know, if, if you're familiar with 100 years ago, they had this idea that lumps on your skull indicated certain things in your personality. And so they would say, if you have a lump here or a, you know, a divot here, that means you're aggressive or it means you're nice or whatever. And it's ridiculous. It, you know, it's complete pseudoscience, not supported by evidence. And I don't know why we sort of gravitate towards this. I don't know, maybe for simplicity's sake, but whenever a little bit of brain science is released, we tend to want to simplify it in these ways, like, you know, left and right. Um, you know, we, we tend to think in these ways, right? We tend to have these dualities. You got left people and you got right people. You have left-handed people and right-handed people. You have good people and evil people, liberal and conservative. You have men and you have women. You have white people and black people. You have dog people and cat people. You have Star Wars people and Star Trek people. You have Team Edward and you have Team Jacob. You have, you know, Dick York and Dick Sargent. And you have right-brained and left-brained. We tend to really want to shove things into two categories because it's, I guess it's probably harder for our brain to think beyond that or something. It's harder for us to be like, actually the whole brain is responsible for everything. And in general, you know, so know that the left brain, right thing is complete crap. Um, We tend to use our entire brain for most processes, although there can be some localized, um, more activity for certain activities, but but we tend to use our entire brain f- for for most things, particularly when it comes to like something like creativity. You know, creativity is too broad of a thing to even define um, for our brain to just have one spot that that is in charge of creativity on one side of the brain. Anyway, um, along these lines, you know, people say we only use ten percent of the brain. That's all crap. I hope you really know that. That's a common. I hope you've been exposed to the debunking of that myth. Um, we use 100% of our brain. It would be really inefficient if we evolved to have an organ in which we only used 10% of, especially since, I don't know, something a third of our calories gets gobbled up by the brain. It's just like that would be not a recipe for survival. <laughs> um, and there are still movies being created like this, like Lucy, the one with um, – Scarlett Johansson, it was completely based on that. You know, she took some drug that like made her progressively use more and more percentage of her brain. And I just thought like, uh, like there's, there's, there's a way to write that story so that you don't have to use a complete dumb myth that pulls all the smart people out of that movie. You know, you could have just been like, this drug increases the efficiency of your brain or something, you know, that's all you had to say. Anyway. Number 10 is some hacky thing I'll, that I can think of off the top of my head that I'll hear people say is that psychiatrists are terrible therapists. I'll hear, you know, I'll hear people say this. It's a myth that psychiatrists can't be good at therapy. 
Um, now, some psychiatrists are terrible therapists, but you know, some therapists are terrible therapists. So, but yeah, some psychiatrists are really awful, but there's plenty of psychiatrists who actually set their mind to become educated and supervised and experienced in psychotherapy in as much as an, a non-psychiatry uh, mental health clinician. So that's a kind of a hacky thing to say. Number 11 related to that is when people say that like medications are bad, like, you know, therapists will say, well, I don't want to put her on medication because, you know, that doesn't seem necessary. Or they'll say that, you know, I have this kid client who's on Adderall and it just is so stupid. Like everyone's being medicated, you know, these days. And, you know, there's some truth to that there certainly are some kids who are being prescribed things that they shouldn't. I mean, there's there's five-year-olds being prescribed antipsychotics and stuff, and for sure there are some problems. But just these blanket black-and-white statements that medications are bad is just really ignorant of the true landscape of medication, especially if you're not a prescriber and you're not a medical professional. For you to say such a thing, to just basically denigrate an entire field of medicine, just is it's hacky. It, it means that you really don't know what you're talking about. There are um, plenty of people who, upon taking a medication, it completely changes their life. You know, some of those people are placebo, but many of them are not. Um, now, we have a long way to go before we actually have, uh, you know, the kind of medication and the kind of biological treatments that we need for the brain. Um, you know, we're, in my estimation, we're basically in the dark ages when it comes, I mean, we're still using lithium that was developed, I don't know, in the forties or something. So, you know, we're, it's hard, uh, it's hard research and it's hard to develop, but anyway, anyone, any therapist is like, Oh, medications are bad. Or when they, when they sort of intimate that notion, I think, Oh, you're kind of hacky about meds. Number 12 is when people will say, you know, kid therapists will say, it's normal for kids to be hyperactive and distracted, you know, like they'll have a kid who's on Adderall or a kid who's diagnosed with ADHD and they'll be like, it's normal for kids to be distractible. That's, you know, ADHD, it's such a bullshit diagnosis or something. And certainly, like I said, with meds can be overdiagnosed. ADHD, the label can be thrown around quite haphazardly. I mean, there are teachers diagnosing their kids with ADHD and like acting like they know what they're talking about. And it's like, um, you're a teacher. Like you can certainly have an idea or suspicion, but you have to defer to a mental health person for that. So certainly there are um, misapplications of the label of ADHD, but there are some people who believe that there are clinicians whom I've talked to who believe that ADHD doesn't exist at all. They're just like, why do we have to pathologize kids? And it's just like, they are ignorant of the reality that there are people who legitimately suffer from ADHD. Now, I understand why they're ignorant because they have never actually had a case of ADHD. But once you actually – so I'll just tell, tell you my discovery was I learned about ADHD and I had a, I had a intellectual understanding of it. And I'd seen the label kind of get thrown around a lot. And then I had this one client. Uh, it was an in-home client. I went to the house. And this kid was climbing on everything. He seemed very unhappy. His parents were pulling their hair out. The parents seemed like adequate parents, at least, you know, with the little bit of assessment I did. This child, to my eyes, had an organic problem with his brain that made it so that he could not concentrate, he could not focus, 
he had to be constantly moving and fidgeting and futzing with things. And it was then that I realized, oh, wow, this is what the DSM is talking about. This is what the researchers are talking about. They're not talking about a kid who's, you know, the only thing wrong with him, quote unquote, is that he's just not putting effort into school. You know, this is someone who is clearly has some sort of biological problem with their brain. It was at that point that I said, oh, now I get ADHD. Now, not everyone with ADHD exhibits that behavior for sure. There's ADHD is a very strange multifaceted disorder with lots of different um, presentations. But my point is, is that it was then that I realized, you know, that it's an organic problem and of subsequent observations and assessments, I have found that to be true in other people as well, that it's, it's a deficit of the biology of the brain and that deficit will show up in a lot of different ways. Um, it often will cause people to be quite ashamed of themselves because they think that they're not putting in enough effort into life or they're stupid or something. But anyway, I digress. Uh, okay. Three more here. Number 13 is when people use the five stages of grief, the five stages of grief years ago have been thoroughly debunked. Uh, just going over the history in 1975, Elizabeth Kubler Ross, she published her famous book on death and dying and death and dying, I think. And she laid out her five stages that, so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a psychiatrist, I believe, or some kind of mental health person who worked at a hospital. And she worked with people who were dying, who had terminal illness, like cancer or something. And they were in the hospital to die. They were basically hospice people. Or they were in the hospital and likely to die very soon. And she would interview them and find out what their psychological experience was. And what she found was that there were five stages. There was denial, number one, meaning that the patient was like, I'm not really dying or, you know, I'm not going to think about it or my doctor's stupid. I need a second opinion or, you know, I'll pull out of this, even though they were told quite pointedly that they were going to die for, you know, 99% sure you're going to die very soon. So the patients would go into a phase of denial that could last for a very short amount of time, a very long amount of time. Then they would get they would enter a second phase under her observation of anger. They would be angry about something, you know, there's a lot of things to be angry about. Like, God damn it, why did I get this, you know, disease? Or God damn it, why did I smoke cigarettes? Or God damn it, you know, why didn't someone tell me earlier so I could have caught this? You know, there's anger. Number three is bargaining. So this is when the patient might say like, well, I'll pray to God. And maybe if I pray to God, I can, I can bargain with God to save me. You know, I'll go to church every day or some other kind of bargaining situation or you know what if i what if i eat well and i exercise i could save my life it's this it's this effort to salvage your situation even though you are likely doomed number 4 is depression so after you sort of give up bargaining you're just like i'm depressed man this is this sucks uh, i don't want to move i don't want to get out of bed i don't want to talk to anybody i hate life i just want to lay here and stare at the ceiling. This, this is terrible. And then number five was acceptance. Now she didn't find everyone went through these phases, but she found them to, in her observation, to be pretty universal. Now this is not a research study. She's just anecdotally going around talking to these people and found that there were these five phases. For whatever reason, these five phases became adopted into stages of grief, meaning that 
when you uh, lose someone who who's who is dead or divorce or something, you go through these five stages. Actually, if I remember, I think Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, her book was so popular that she actually expanded it into people who were actually grieving as well. Um, I, I'm kind of foggy on the details. It, this is all related to my unfinished book on grief. I actually have a, a, a whole section on Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, but it's been so long since I've written that book and probably never will return to it. God knows. But anyway, Part of the reason why I'm never going to finish that book is because I keep having to do deep dives for you people. <laughs> it's all your fault. Um, I mean, it is actually the reason, but I love doing deep dives a lot. And I know I can spend, like, I kind of did a mini deep dive on this topic, but I'm also working on a deep dive on attachment. And I really like doing that. One, because I just love doing it. Two, I want to provide all of you with good content, you know, valuable content. Three, I want to try to help people because I feel like attachment theory is a powerful thing that can help people even if, you just, even if you're not a clinician. And four, I like doing the deep dives because even though it, takes, it might take me a couple months to do, I know that I will eventually finish it in a couple months. Whereas my book, when I sit down to write my book, I'm like, well, this could be a year or five years of work. I really just don't know because you know, the last book that I published I thought would take me a certain amount of time. It ended up taking me 10 or 20 times more time. But anyway, so I, in my book, there's a bit on Elizabeth Cooper Ross. There's these five stages of grief. Now the concept went everywhere, right? Like people started saying, like I just did a Google search, the five stages of grief applied to snow days. So when you have a snow day at school, it's like the five stages of grief. The five stages of grief in a video game. The five stages of grief on social media grief. The five stages of Trump-induced GOP grief. So, and the list goes on and on. There's, you know, internet loves the five stages of grief. Our society loves the notion of the five stages of grief. People will think that it's gospel. It's like, yeah, there are five stages of grief. But as, you know, we actually started looking at it, we discovered that no, these five stages are not universal. There are some rare cases where people actually do phenomenologically follow these five stages of grief, but it's by no means universal. Some people never go into denial. Some people never get angry. Some people never bargain. Some people never get depressed. And some people never accept. Or, or they go straight to accept, and that's all they do. They just go straight to stage five. and you know. So that's not a state – when we actually look at actual humans – that don't follow this model, they don't follow the five stages of grief. But for some reason, the idea of the five stages of grief is so pervasive and not enough professors are talking about it that a lot of clinicians will talk about it as if it's scientifically demonstrated when it's not. So stop saying it. Number 14, oh boy, this is a touchy one, astrology. <laughs> now, if, you're, if you love astrology, I am sorry for what I'm about to say. I'm going to, I'm going to try to be as fair as possible, but I believe that when therapists who uh, talk about astrology as if it is scientific fact, um, I consider that person, I hate to say this, but kind of a hack. Uh, a good percentage of you out there probably love astrology. Now, I, me and Umberto did a whole episode about parapsychological ideas. I, it might be a, it might be a patron only episode. You can listen to our full discussion on astrology in that episode. But 
I talked about in that episode, and I'll talk about now, that I actually believe in things that cannot be supported by science. I'm not going to talk about them because I don't want to self-disclose them, but I, I believe in classic uh, you know, human belief systems that, that are completely easily disproven by science, and yet I still believe. But what I don't do is claim that science does demonstrate it when it doesn't. And there are people who believe in astrology, and I like astrology. I'll, I'll read my horoscope, and I'll be like, oh, that's fun, you know. I'm a Sagittarius. I like to identify as a Sagittarius. People tend to like Sagittaria, Sagittarians. They'll be like, oh, you're a Sag. That's so cool. I, when I meet another Sag, I'm like, oh, we're both Sages. You know, I'll do that, and it's fine. You know, you like to look in the how y- y- your sign matches up with your partner's sign. You know, how does... How does Sagittarius match up with Capricorn, you know, and you do that whole thing. And I do that. I do that. But I only do it because I think it's fun and I think it's, it can be eerily uh, accurate at times. But I would never claim that science has demonstrated that astrology is actually, you know, sound science because it isn't. There's been tons of studies that have looked into astrology, because wouldn't it be interesting if astrology was actually accurate? Wouldn't that be interesting? And the vast majority of the studies have demonstrated that astrology cannot be demonstrated. You know, like, it's not hard to actually study astrology. All you got to do is ask an expert in astrology to, based on someone's birthday and whatever else they need to know, can they predict this person's personality? And they found countless times that they're not any better than chance. Or another study that they have done many times is they write up a astrological, uh, you know, write up, and they give it to a group of people, and they say, you know, based on your astrological sign, we have found that this should be true about you. And so the group of people they read the description, and then they put the paper down, and they're like, oh my god astrology really nailed it. You know, you really got me right. You know, it'll be something like, you know, since you were born in blank month, you are loyal, you are creative, you are thoughtful, you are, uh, but you're considering a transition soon. So take care to consider everyone's opinion, particularly your loved ones. So some people will read that and they'll be like, oh my God, how did you know? I am loyal, I am creative, I am thoughtful, and I am considering a transition soon. And you know what? I do need to consider the opinions of my loved ones. Man, this astrology stuff is really is really good. So they'll send out, you know, these these profiles, these predictions to a bunch of people and they'll say this is specifically tailored to your sign. And they'll be like, "Yep, astrology works." Well, and then they reveal to everyone all of you have the exact same profile. We've we the exact same verbiage was sent to all of you, independent of your of your sign. And by the way we worded it, it felt accurate to you because we know high probability that you consider yourself to be loyal, creative, and thoughtful. Because most people like to think of themselves that way, and most people are thinking about a transition. Most people have transitions that are. That are coming, and plus, what do we mean by transition? I mean that could mean like changing a job, or getting a divorce, or buying a new car, or you know, moving down the street, or something, or your kid has graduated from high school, or something. You know, transitions are happening all the time, 
And it's generally good advice to ask people around you for their opinion. So astrologers really know how to do this, at least the ones who know how to scam people. So, you know, they, the, and there's many other elegant studies that actually try to look at um, why people believe in astrology when it actually isn't a good predictor of anything. But again, like I said, I get it. If you're a staunch bully, I have very good friends who are essentially religious astrologers. And no matter what I say to them, they're like, you're wrong. It's I've seen it work. It works. When you go to an expert, they know everything about you. Uh, and it has transformed my life, you know. I don't have any problem with that. I don't have any problem with, with people being like, I love astrology, it's transformed my life. In the same way that I don't have any problem with someone saying, um, you know, Jesus saved my life and Christianity saved my life, or I love Christianity, I love going to church. There's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But when either groups of those people or any other group like this starts making scientific claims as if it's supported by science, then you are, you are talking like a hack. <laughs> um, so, if you're a therapist out there um, and you're talking to me, I guess, and you talk about how you love astrology, but you also say, but, you know, I understand science doesn't really support it, but I, I don't know. I kind of believe. If you said that, I would not think you're a hack. But here's what I see people doing. I, I've seen this in therapists and students before. They'll, they will think that... Um, Astrology is a legitimate science that can be applied to their clients. I've seen therapists do this. They'll be like, well, you know, my client is a Leo, therefore blah, 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 blah. And yeesh, right? <laughs> like, ooh. And so, um, you know, that's pretty hacky to me. Pretty hacky. And scary. If you're basing your treatment plan on astrology, I don't know what to say. Again, like I said, I believe in things that I care not to talk about that are complete, uh, completely not supported by science. And yet, I still believe, and I'm fine with that, but I never would say, and therefore, it is scientific fact, you know, that kind of thing. And the last one here, number 15, is not knowing how to treat trauma. You've heard me rant about this before. Um, uh, it's a problem in our profession. And as I rant about it more and more and more people write into, into me their, their stories about how they weren't trained well or how they were in therapy themselves and their therapist did not treat trauma, it, I'm realizing that it's even a bigger problem than I thought it was, or at least I'm beginning to suspect. Just to lay out my five different steps of trauma therapy, you need informed consent, which means you need to educate the individual on what trauma, what your model of trauma therapy is and what it involves, and they have to agree to it. That's a very important step. And that could take a number of sessions, and that could take years. I've worked with people where I explain trauma therapy to them, and it they sort of kind of in they sort of kind of consent, but not really. And it takes like five years from them to say, I think I'm ready. Okay. Number two is demonstrated ongoing emotional awareness, particularly of distress. Number three is demonstrated ongoing emotional regulation, particularly distress management. And again, these are these can take a long time. Uh, with kids, you might never leave these two stages. They, you might never go on to stage to, to the fourth phase. 
Phase four is exposure trials, where you will, through imaginal exposure of remembering traumatic events and having the client talk about it, you will uh, do trial and error on uh, how triggered they become, and you'll get a gauge for how fast and what sort of topics should be talked about first and which topics should be avoided at first. And then phase five is just, you know, implementing the exposure, imaginal exposure therapy, while uh, helping them to habituate to those memories by helping them reduce their distress level in the moment as they're talking about it in session. Anyway, a lot of therapists do not know this. And although I wouldn't say that they're a hack because they don't know it, because I, my observation is most therapists do not understand this um, reality, but I just thought I'd tack it on there to make it even 15. <laughs> anyway, so I actually asked listeners to submit their examples of what they thought a hack therapist was. So let's read those. So I posted on Facebook and Patreon for people to submit their examples of amateurish things that therapists have done. So um, here it goes. Uh, Asia said, how does that make you feel? Uh, when, when a client, when a therapist says, how does that make you feel? That to her was very uh, amateurish. And I've heard this before. I've heard that you're not supposed to say that phrase. And so I actually asked her, I was like, can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Because me, Kirk, I frequently ask my clients, how does that make you feel? Um, and she said, what I'm referring to is when therapists are being condescending, they're tilting their head, and they don't really have anything of substance to say. So I think that's where this rule comes into play. It's like, if you're if you're asking how does it make you feel in a condescending way or in a simplistic way, then absolutely that's awful. But sometimes I want to know how someone feels about something, so I ask that question anyway. So I just Asia says that was hacky. Asia also says has an answer to everything. So yeah, I've actually experienced this as a client before. I had a therapist once that was like this who would always they always had an answer for everything you know they was oh that's because of this or well it sounds like this and, and it just felt like they were jumping the gun a lot and that's not a good practice to get into it seemed like the, like the therapists were kind of narcissistic like they just liked to interpret they liked to be smart and they wanted me to think that they were smart when i was slowly losing respect for them antonio wrote over exaggerating face expressions and and say that must have been so hard as if they are talking to a puppy. Yeah, that sounds awful. Stephanie wrote, your depression is caused by a neurochemical imbalance. Um, this one's kind of a subtle one. So if the, there are absolutely times when I would conceptualize someone's depression as being quote unquote caused by a neurochemical imbalance, I, I don't think I would use that phrase. I might, call, I might just say biologically disposed or something. So certainly this one um, can be at least conceptually accurate. But if you're just dismissing somebody, which I'm guessing is what Stephanie went through, and saying like, oh, you know, you just, you're biologically depressed and so I don't have to talk to you. I don't have to have, have empathy for you. Um, I don't have to acknowledge all the crap that's going on in your life. I don't have to acknowledge the marginalization or the trauma or the pain in your life. I, I just have to write it all off as like, it's all in your biology and that's that. Then absolutely, that is an awful message to go across. Uh, Sioban Sobin 
wrote, um, quote unquote, that person is borderline. Um, I didn't ask for elaboration on this, but I'm guessing I know what this person is talking about is that this very quick analysis. Oh, that person's borderline. Oh, that person's borderline. Like they'll just hear a little bit of information and they'll go boop, boop, borderline. Yes, that's certainly a hacky thing to do. Adele wrote, you should dot, dot, dot. Meaning that when a therapist says you should do this, you should do that. You should do this. That's a hacky thing to do. And I would absolutely agree with that. Ash wrote, I had a therapist who told me to just eat turkey to dissuade me from considering SSRIs because there was some sort of chemical property of turkey that would negate the need for an antidepressant. That is, yeah, wow. <laughs> just eat turkey. You know, I, you know, at first I'm thinking, my God, what planet is that person from? But you know what? I have seen, I've heard similar things from therapists. They fancy themselves some kind of smart person when it comes to biology, and they they go on some ridiculous site like Goop or something. They read an article, and they're like, oh, okay, I'm going to start recommending this to my clients. And, you know, if you want to recommend it to yourself or your family, great. But if you're going to bring it into the, a session with a client, like, my God, you better know what the fuck you're talking about. And obviously this person know what they were talking about. Turkey? I mean, man, come on. Uh, Amy, my uh, old friend Amy from graduate school, she wrote, you don't look like you have an eating disorder. And she wrote that she's heard this many, many times. Yeah, to elaborate on this one, uh, certainly a hacky thing for a therapist to say. So there's this myth that if you have an eating disorder, you're supposed to be super thin and gaunt, you know, and that's an absolute misconception. And every therapist should understand that that, you know, is ridiculous, that I would guess the majority of people who qualify for an eating disorder actually aren't thin and gaunt, but, you know, have a quote unquote normal looking body. So, yeah, absolute hacky thing to say, especially to say it out loud. You don't look like you have an eating disorder. It's like, my God. Katie wrote, my first therapist told me that based on my desire to have kids and get married, that I should let go of my attraction to women and focus on dating men. Good news, she stopped practicing therapy. Yeah, yikes. So it sounds like you are a gay woman who wanted to have, uh, who wanted to get married and have kids. And the therapist is like, uh, you should let go of your attraction to women, or at least maybe you're bisexual or something. I don't know. Um, you have attraction to women and you're like, I'm attracted to women. I want to get married. I want to have kids. And um, the therapist is like, oh, you should start dating men. Um, and she says, good news. She stopped practicing therapy. Yeah. God, Jesus. Come on. Grant, uh, my old supervisee, wrote, Using diagnoses as jargon in casual conversations like, oh, I'm so OCD about salad forks, or my latte was so cold it gave me PTSD. Yeah, yikes. Kristen wrote, I had a therapist tell my daughter after 20 minutes after her first session that she thought my daughter's issues would take about six sessions. How could she assume that? She minimized all of my daughter's suffering. Needless to say, we never returned. 
Yeah, that's that's kind of a tough one because some therapists come from a school of thought that you're actually supposed to tell the client up front how many sessions it will take. And some agencies actually promote this idea or even require it. It, it, it kind of makes some sense, right? It's like as a consumer, when you sign up for therapy, you should know like the landscape before you agree to it. It's sort of an informed consent thing. Having said that, uh, the way it, it's communicated should take into account emotionally where clients are and should reflect the intensity at which a client is experiencing life. So, you know, this person, she goes into therapy with her daughter and they're talking about all the struggles they're going through and all the things that they would like to see happen. And the therapist is like, okay, I think this will take six sessions. And the mother's like, that's all like, it sounds like you weren't listening to me, you know, that can be very problematic. So yeah, certainly hacky thing. It sounds like an inexperienced therapist might've said that. I don't know. Uh, Lindsay wrote a good chunk of therapists would always say, use your coping skills time and time again, use your coping skill. Yeah. I've seen this before. It's like there, there are certain therapists who, um, I actually had a supervisor that was like this. I, I late in my career, I had a supervisor. I was going to her and I was, you know, I'd present on this case and I'd talk for 10 minutes about the ins and outs. And in very 99% of the time, her response to me was, well, have you worked with your client about coping skills? What kind of skills have you taught your client? And at first I was like, oh, okay, that's probably something I don't really focus on enough. So, you know, I'll do that a little bit more. But then I learned it was every Every problem she that was presented to her, she saw as a problem of coping skills. <laughs> it was like, you know, counting to 10 and taking a bath and um, hugging your pet or something. It was like not all of life's issues and human experiential issues could be solved by quote unquote coping skills. And so this um, person, Lindsay, uh, is exhibiting that. Yes, I consider that kind of hacky. Yeah or problematic at the very least. She also wrote, I had one therapist convinced I was possessed by a demon and they performed some weird type of exorcism. Hey, Janice, good friend Janice wrote in and said, I used, I used to gaff myself with a colleague each morning. I'm not sure if I would say that's amateurish, but I wouldn't do that with a patient. Janice, what do you mean by this? I, GAF, so global global area functioning. Um, you used to gaff yourself with a colleague each morning? What does that mean? <laughs> like you'd rate yourself on the gaff scale or something? Um, there's so many jokes in there that I want to say. Snow wrote in and said, I don't really like my job. So she has it in quotes, so, or he or she, or they. So said that their therapist said, I don't really like my job. Yeah, that's a pretty amateurish thing to say to your clients. I don't like my job. Nick wrote in and said, Z, you know, Z, time's up. So in other words, you have a client or you have a therapist who is bored and disconnected and then kind of drifting off to sleep and then all of a sudden, boom, time's up. Yeah, I, I don't know if that's a hacky thing or a um, amateurish thing, but that's a bad thing for sure. Tomas wrote in and said, Quote, yeah, but nothing bad actually happened in response to coerced sex in the context of an abusive partner. 
So, yeah, wow. So Tomas is saying that uh, they were basically raped, and the um, therapist said, yeah, but nothing bad actually happened. Like, Hannah, this last one wrote, about four years ago, I once had an intern who was sitting in my therapist, sitting in with my therapist, and they asked if it hurt when I would cut myself. I haven't let another intern sit in on one of my sessions since then. Yeah. Uh, The intern is like, so does it hurt when you cut yourself? Like, what? Where does that question come from? I, I find that and I had this problem too when I started out, is novice therapists will not know the difference between their own weird curiosity about something and asking a question that is therapeutic or necessary for assessment. And what I'm guessing is, is that intern had very little experience or knowledge about cutting, about self-harm, about non-suicidal self-injury. And the intern was like, you know, does it, so does it hurt? Because if it hurts, why would you do it? You know, there, I'm, that's what I'm guessing that they are asking. Who knows? There's, you know, God knows the reason, but I could see a situation like that. And, and with my supervisees, I will find that they will kind of fall into that, that pitfall. They will, they'll have a curiosity in their mind and they'll, and they'll just ask the question without really realizing the only reason why I'm asking this question is because I'm just ignorant of this whole thing. (laughs) And I'm just curious about, about what's going on here, you know? And, um, and they don't realize that the question can actually be quite off putting to the client because one, it could be like an indication you're not really listening that you're, you're more just curious for your own selfish reasons. Um, or two, it could just indicate that you really just have no idea you're talking about, you know, for, for a mental health person to ask someone, does it hurt when you cut yourself? Just, you know, who knows, but it really is a a massive red flag that you as a therapist have no idea what you're doing because of course it hurts. (laughs) That's the whole point. (laughs) And yeah, when I cut myself with a razor it doesn't hurt at all. Like, it's just stupid. I mean, having said that, sometimes after the first few cuts, you can be on such an endorphin high that it won't hurt. But anyway, I digress. So thanks for writing in, everyone. If, if you want to participate, in, so I'm going to start doing this more often because I, I find it quite enjoyable. Just before recording, I'll post on Facebook or Patreon for, um, I'll just, you know, throw out some questions and kind of do a little research on that. But man, reading reading this long list of hacky, amateurish, terrible therapist techniques or actions. It's, it's just depressing to me. It's like, what are we doing with our profession that these kinds of things can happen? And that clients can't really do anything about it, right? It's like, what do you do? I mean, the, you can go to the state and complain, but that's a whole process that a lot of people aren't going to want to get involved in. And these therapists just get to, you know, get away with their ridiculous things and probably continue going down weird roads, you know? Anyway... So yeah, just to review my 15 here. So we got using the word codependency out of, out of, you know, the wrong way, using the term sociopath in a wrong way, saying the word disassociation, uh, using other apply, other specified or specified diagnoses in a hacky way, uh, saying that a particular theory is stupid, saying that psychodynamic therapy and humanistic therapy are not evidence-based, saying that Freud was an idiot saying it's, it's unethical to accept gifts or it's unethical to have a public Instagram account, uh, 
referring to left brain, right brain, saying that psychiatrists are terrible therapists, saying that meds are terrible universally, um, saying it's normal for kids to be hyperactive and distracted when you clearly don't understand the reality of ADHD, referring to the five stages of grief, using astrology as if it were hard science with your clients, and number 15, not knowing about how to treat trauma. So those are my 15. Again, I'm sorry if you love astrology. I dig it. I'm with you. Just please don't apply it in a scientific way. And I'm sure if you cherry-picked the thousands of studies, you could find one study that actually supports astrology, kind of. Um, That does not erase the mountain of evidence that demonstrates that it doesn't. You know, when it comes to p-values... 5% 5% of the time, you're going to have a random chance result, and that's what you're probably finding. <laughs> now, we might also have research studies that find that when people adhere to astrology, it actually makes their life better. You know, I'm not saying that astrology is bad for your life, but what I'm saying is, is that the notion that you can predict personality and the future based on someone's birthday is not supported by the evidence. It can be fun, and it can be a belief system, and you can believe, uh, but, um, you know, don't claim that there is scientific evidence for it, please. All right, well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle, in which I lost all my listeners who like astrology. Please take care of yourself, because you deserve it. You really, really do. (laughs) 